Welcome to the fourth episode of the Curious on Earth podcast. I'm your host, Henry Soinuma, and this is my conversation with Ethan Nedelman, the founder and former executive director of the Drug Policy Alliance, a New York City-based nonprofit that seeks to reduce the role of criminalization in drug policy, advocates for the legal regulation of cannabis, and promotes health-centered drug policy. The work done by Ethan and the DPA has been instrumental in the global drug policy reform movement, so I was really glad to be able to have this conversation with him. Ethan is also the host of the excellent Psychoactive podcast produced by his friend, filmmaker Darren Aronofsky. So if you're interested in adult conversations on all things drugs, I warmly recommend the podcast. Our conversation here was recorded back in July, and I think it's uh, still as relevant now as it was back then. Uh, some of the topics that we cover include the relationship between freedom of thought and religion and drug policy, the effects of dehumanizing drug war rhetoric in the Philippines and elsewhere, the tightening grip around e-cigarettes, and the effects of the av- availability of snooze on the prevalence of smoking in Sweden, why there's still black market can- cannabis in places that, ha- that have legalized it, the relationship between prohibition and corruption, whether all drugs should be legally regulated, and why the idea of a drug-free world can be thought of as a form of totalitarianism. We also discussed the rise of authoritarianism around the world, and Ethan talks about the role of his Jewish, Jewish roots and the Holocaust in why he became a drug policy and freedom activist. I hope you enjoy our conversation, and as always, your comments, likes, shares, and subscriptions are very welcome and also help with the algorithm. And if you want to support my work, please also consider uh, joining my Patreon. So, welcome. Very good to have you here, Ethan. I've been looking forward to this. Yeah, no, it's it's a pleasure, Henry. I, I'm glad to join it. And I, it's not, you know, I, I, I except for once. Briefly changing planes in the in the Helsinki airport. I've actually never been in Finland, and I look forward to going one day. So, but it's nice to be connecting with you know people involved in drug policy reform in Finland. Whether where you and I met at the uh, Ayahuasca Congress in Girona, Spain, a few years ago, or meeting some of your other colleagues in the Finnish uh, Drug Policy Association at the uh, Nordic Reform Conference in Oslo last year. So, mm-hmm. and I'm I'm inspired to see some elements of progress uh, in Finland now. So. Good to be on your show. Hmm. Welcome. Uh, so my my initial question is that how did you first become interested in drugs? What's the first thing you rem- you remember? Yeah, I mean, I mean, it really, it, it really. Well, it depends how far you want to go back. I mean, on some level, you know, familiarity with alcohol went back to childhood. Part of that had to do with growing up in a somewhat traditional Jewish family, where we had wine on the Sabbath, even as kids. And, you know, I even remember just being, you know, 12, 13 and going to synagogue on Saturday mornings. And afterwards, they'd have these little tiny cups of of um, of uh, the, the Manischewitz, the kind of sweet red wine. And, you know, my friends and I would, you know, have a few of those things and get a little tipsy. And it would be a Saturday afternoon and our parents would be around and it was all kind of accepted. But I think the really wake up moment was was when I went off to college. I, I went to I grew up in New York, outside New York City, in the suburb of New York City. Uh, but I went to college initially at McGill University in Montreal. 
And interestingly, it, there, although in the United States we had very little hash, in Montreal it was mostly hash. For some reason, they were getting their cannabis more from Europe than they were from the U.S. And and I remember, you know, as a freshman, my freshman year of college, beginning to, you know, smoke, you know, cannabis hash, and enjoying it, and just wondering why is this stuff uh, illegal? Um, uh, it didn't make any sense to me, and I was, you know, enjoyed alcohol as well, but cannabis was clearly the less dangerous substance, and I had friends who were getting busted at the border going back and forth to the U.S., not smuggling or anything, just having a little in their pocket. And so I think that really was what first hit me about it. Um, and I, I should say, you know, I've now had a, a basically very nice relationship with cannabis um, since I was 18 years old. So for me, and I think for most of the people I know, it's been a, you know, it's been a good relationship. And then at some point thereafter, when I was in my early 20s, I began to, you know, have experiences with uh, other drugs. With mushrooms was probably far and away the most significant. I tried cocaine, but I never really cared for it. Um, and so that really, uh, you know, that began to open up my thinking about drug use a lot. But then separately, I got issue, interested in the whole issue of international, the, the international drug war and drug policy. And that was really a key thing as well. Before we go further into that, uh, a thing that just popped into my head as, as I was listening to your reply was that I think there's quite often a connection that people who are into cannabis or psychedelics, uh, or let me phrase it the other way around, uh, people who are uh, using some sort of drugs and, and are into drug policy reform uh, seem to tend to be people who are into cannabis and psychedelics. It, it doesn't seem that there's a connection uh, that people, for example, who are mostly doing cocaine or speed are very much into into drug policy reform. I'm, I'm not saying that no one who is into reform does that, but I think the connection is often often heard. Well, you know, it's interesting. I mean, obviously, uh, I would say probably most, but not all of the people interested in psychedelics reform, especially, I mean, look, in the psychedelics area, you have some investors who have actually never tried this stuff, um, who are now interested in it for pecuniary reasons. In the cannabis area, you have some people who come to it purely as a matter of principle, uh, and either you know once smoked marijuana and no longer do, um, or have never done it, um, or who are involved in cannabis reform as part of broader drug policy reform, but they themselves don't use these drugs. But I think overwhelmingly, you're right. I can think of lots of exceptions, but you're right. But I think you have to keep in mind that when it comes to the other drugs. <coughs> When you look both in the U.S. and in throughout much of the world, the harm reduction movement, really a huge part of the harm reduction movement is also people who have used drugs like cocaine or heroin or methamphetamine, you name it. I mean, I see that most of the people I know who opened up the initial needle exchange programs and the activists, those were people who either were using at the time or had been using in the past. And the same thing was true in Europe. You look at the drug user organizations around North America, around Europe, sometimes even in parts of Asia. Those consist of people who are becoming increasingly effective advocates. So you do have, you know, it's, it's, it's more challenging to keep your drug use under control oftentimes. But I think it's important to understand that, that certainly in the origins of the international harm reduction movement, which I see as having a huge overlap with the international drug policy reform movement, you did have people who are active users or former users. And those kind of combined with people coming at this from a more public health or scientific or academic or ultimately public policy background. So the link is definitely stronger among those with cannabis and psychedelics, but uh, it's not exclusive. Yeah, maybe it would be more like a a more sensible way of reframing the idea that I had was that 
the experiences in themselves with with cannabis or psychedelics might uh, inspire people to start thinking about uh, drug policy reform. Whereas, for example, with opioids, maybe it's more that experiences of using them in the context of the current le- legal situation is what inspires them. But I'm not sure that might be bullshit. I think that's I think that's right. I mean, I mean, you know, it, it's the whole discussion you increasingly hear now about cannabis or psychedelic exceptionalism. Right, it's one of the issues in trying to build a, both a, a drug policy reform organization and a movement within the U.S. and internationally over the course of many decades. It's one of the things I've had to contend with frequently because you know one of the things I'll say is in my own personal life I am very much a cannabis and psychedelic exceptionalist. You know these are the drugs that have been, you know, immensely uh, made a immensely I think positive contribution in my life. The upside has greatly outweighed the downside, and I think that's true for the large majority of cannabis and psychedelics consumers. I mean, we all know there are people for whom cannabis or psychedelics have been a disaster. There have, you know, been deaths that have resulted from psychedelics use in irresponsible ways. Uh, you know, I know people who have a terrible relationship with cannabis where it's been a very bad thing in their lives. But overwhelmingly, in the personal situation and more globally, these are drugs which have a huge kind of benefit-to-cost ratio, Right. Which you have on the harm reduction movement, it's less, you hear less of people singing the praises of these drugs, of heroin, of fentanyl, of methamphetamine, of, of you know, the powder drugs. You do get that. You can find it, right? You can find people who do sing the praises of these drugs. But by and large, I think they're much more focused on saying we want to stop the government from treating us like criminals simply because of the drug we're putting in our body. You know, I mean, if we're using these drugs, whether out of whether we define it as doing out of choice or addiction or what have you, you know, you know, we don't want the government persecuting us simply for that. You know, uh, treat us like human beings. Stop discriminating against us. And and I so I think it is more the harm reduction more movement is less about the celebration of the positive values of these drugs. And as you say, more about warding off the evils that government and and even non-governmental forces can do to people because of the ways in which the use of these drugs is deeply demonized and stigmatized throughout much of the world. I'm also, for the time that I have had an interest in drugs personally, the interest has definitely been on psychedelics. And uh, you mentioned psychedelic exceptionalism, and it definitely took me a long time to even become really interested in the experiences of people who are interested in drugs that I'm not personally interested in. And Mm -hmm. uh, as as it's like, uh, as my interest in drugs has become more like political and societal instead of just personal, I found myself very interested in hearing about the actual experiences of like the motivations on why people mm-hmm. do choose to use uh, opioids or, or stimulants. And it's actually very fascinating to to increase my understanding about that. Yeah, you know, it, it's... Uh, uh, I mean, I, I, if I think about, you know, one of the ways I connected is is to say, you know, the United States... Um, one of the things that's kept the United States, in my regard, a kind of great nation and that has retained our fundamental democracy for over 200 years, although it appears to be increasingly at risk these days, but it's the First Amendment of our U.S. Constitution. And the First Amendment protects the freedom of speech, press, religion, and assembly, and also prohibits the government from institutionalizing or promoting any particular form of, of, of speech, press, religion, or assembly, right? And it's a core, a core sort of civil liberties, human rights value. And one of the points that's made is that 
the freedom, these freedoms don't just to extend to elevated forms, to elevated forms of, of, of speech, press, you know, worship, uh, assembly, but even to the less elevated and even some of the, some of the reprehensible forms, right? So, and the point being that you need to protect all of it, both the good speech and the bad speech. You need to protect both highly thoughtful, intellectual, engaged type of speech, and you need to protect the, the pornographic speech and the ugly speech and even sometimes the hate speech. Because once a government gets involved in banning what it defines as reprehensible speech, well, most of the population may agree, oh, yeah, that's fine for the government to ban that reprehensible speech. But the next thing you know, the government's banning other types of speech or the government's changing and now they're banning what they regard as reprehensible speech, right? And so I look at the same way with, 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 when it comes to um, our use of psychedelic substances. On the one hand, I think about our First Amendment rights of, of speech, press, religion, assembly, which are now the sorts of rights that are adopted in most advanced you know, democratic societies, and, and basically, all of those elements are really about an element of freedom of consciousness, our, our freedom to read what we want, to say what we want, to worship as we want, to gather as we want, all of this sort of thing. But, you know, it's not just about protecting the elevated drugs, the—I'm the, sorry, let me back up for a second—that all of these core freedoms are also imply an underlying freedom of consciousness, Right, that the state should not intervene and block us from ways of altering our consciousness. Speech, press, religion, and assembly are ways of altering consciousness. So are psychoactive substances. And so when we think about it in that frame, it is to say that as a matter of human rights, as a matter of civil liberties, we need to not persecute you know, the people who use any psychoactive substance. Right, that marijuana psychedelics may be much more elevated, may have much more benefits compared to the risks and the harms compared to heroin, amphetamine, etc. But we need to apply the freedoms across the board. Now, that doesn't mean that we're necessarily going to allow them to be sold in the same way. Right? It may be very, very safe to sell cannabis over the counter, uh, you know, uh, to the to adults, and, you know, legally and legally regulated in ways that do not endanger public health. When it comes to psychedelics. You know, how psychedelics ultimately gets legalized and whether any forms of these things should just simply be sold over the counter the way that alcohol or tobacco or increasingly cannabis are, that too is a kind of open question. But we shy away from saying, let's sell heroin, cocaine, methamphetamine, fentanyl over the counter, right? Very few, even many, most drug policy reformers tend not to go that far. They want to have more restrictions or regulations. But when it comes to personal consumption, when it comes to my right to possess and cons- possess in small amounts for my own use any drug and to consume it, it seems to me that the law needs to protect that across the board, from the drugs that we regard as the most dangerous to the guards that we- drugs that we regard as the safest, right? And that's why, for example, I'm an advocate. You know, when Portugal moved forward 20 years ago and changed their national drug law. And it basically said, we're not going to put anybody in jail for possession of any substance, even heroin, cocaine, methamphetamine. That's the right way to go. Now, it didn't mean that they would say we're going to allow it to be sold over the counter and all that. Um, but it did mean that, there, that the government should refrain as a matter of both principle and good public policy from taking away the freedom of anybody simply because of the drug they put in their body. I actually started thinking about because in Portugal it's a sort of like blanket decriminalization of all drugs, and I'm thinking like, how do they actually define uh, 
the differentiation between a drug and a poison. Are you allowed to personally process uh, things that are more in the poison category than in the drug category in, in Portugal? How do they do that? Well, you know, I, I, I think basically it's any substance, right? So it could be, it could, it, it's really any substance if it's clearly the amount that you're in possession of is intended for personal use. The policy is we're not going to put you in jail, right? We may ask you to come and speak to some health committee. We may harass you and push you to try to get treatment or get services, but we're not going to punish you for anything. And remember also, when it comes to drug versus poison, you know, uh, you know the famous expression, I can't remember the name of the famous Greek medical or whatever, but you know, the dose is the Paracelsus poison. Paracelsus? Is it Paracelsus? Yeah, the dose is the poison. I'm not sure. And uh, I mean, to some extent, of course, it's almost impossible to kill yourself with an overdose of cannabis. Um, and it appears that even when people have taken massive over quote unquote overdoses of LSD or mushrooms, you don't see people dying from it. Um, so they have a very high what would be called toxicity ratio, the you know, the difference between what will kill you and the amount that will give you a positive effect. But by and large, I think it's it's saying that you know this is not about looking at these things as poisons. Uh, it's looking at them as psychoactive substances. And if you're using it just for your own use, um, we're not going to put you in jail. Now, if you go out and start robbing or stealing or doing other things that are hurting other people, we, we, we will put you in jail. And your use of drugs will not be an excuse for your doing that activity. But it is about retaining that basic both principle and that public policy element that we're, the state is not going to take away people's freedom simply because of the drug they're putting in their body. I also found myself thinking about uh, the founding fathers who wrote the constitution and the the un amendments, and uh, it would be really interesting to be able to hear what they've thought about the current drug policy discussion. Because I don't think that was like uh, very current in the time that those documents were written. I, I think to some extent. I mean, look, there was some push. There was an early one of the American, you know, writers. I don't know if he was one of the signers of the constitution or not. His name was Benjamin Rush. And he was known as sort of the first of the major American advocates for alcohol prohibition. So there was some notion of that back, you know, in the late 18th century. But by and large, Americans were very tolerant of alcohol. In fact, alcohol was a major part of co co commerce. I mean, these were times when, you know, oftentimes water was not reliably safe. And so, you know, people drank beer all the time or ale or things like that. And oftentimes, you know, even wheat, would, you know, a, a grain would be transported by being turned into alcohol because it was more efficient to transport it that way. So there wasn't, I mean, alcohol was the principal psychoactive substance and tobacco, which of course was consumed in different ways um, at that time. But I think there was, uh, although there were some people who regarded tobacco consumption as a reprehensible habit uh, in the US and in Europe, uh, I, I, I think, uh, I don't know if they would have thought about it um, very much. I think, remember also, there, there were all sorts of threats to individual freedom that people did not envision back in that day, right? I mean, back then, one of the fears was that the British, you know, army, uh, you know, would be, would be, that people would be obliged to house uh, soldiers from the British army in their homes. That was one of the things that helped create some strong resistance to British rule. And uh, those were the kinds of threats. You know, now, of course, you have electronic surveillance, you have artificial intelligence, you have, you have other types of, of threats that happen, as well as drug testing. The notion of being able to test in somebody's body for what they consume would have seemed preposterous at that time. So, you know, it, it's hard to know exactly what they would have thought. But I I think there was some presumption of you know in 
through, not for all Americans, I mean, the Puritans no doubt didn't think this way, but most Americans, I think, was some notion of bodily integrity, maybe because it was hard for them to even envision threats to that at that time. Yeah, it would be interesting to, to know, you mentioned Benjamin Rush as a, a possible signee who was for prohibition, but it would be interesting to know if there were uh, activities other than intoxicants that the signers would have been uh, supporting the prohibition of like activities that are mainly harmful, possibly for the people who partaking them. Well, remember, I mean, Or, part of the U.S. Yeah. Rea the reaction in the United States was that you obviously had different religious dominations, denominations in the American colonies in the 1600s and 1700s who were highly punitive. I mean, the famous, you know, Salem in America, the Salem witchcraft trials, I think in the 1630s or 40s. I mean, you had a president of Harvard University who was, you know, an advocate of some of these highly punitive things. Thing. So there was a notion that in some religious denominations, both in in the U.S. as in Europe, even though these denominations oftentimes fled from Europe in order to be more free in the colonies, you know, some of them embraced a highly repressive tradition once they were here. So, so you know, if the Puritans had been dominant, it would have been a fairly different situation. But you know, quite a number of the founding fathers were, although they regarded themselves as Christians, they were oftentimes somewhat secular in their beliefs. And they were, you know, they did put in the Constitution the separation of church and state, which was a pretty important tradition to emerge in, you know, 17, uh, you know, between the 1770s and 1780s in the United States. And I think to provide some model, although the ideas initially came out of Western Europe, it did land up providing a model for many other countries around the world because we were among the first to actually institutionalize that in our constitution and in our laws. I think for people in Europe, the the strong protection of freedom in the con uh, sorry strong protection of religion in the constitution is uh, maybe a bit more foreign concept because it's not there's for example in Finland uh, it's not central in the same way as it is in the USA. So for for someone who might be like uh, puzzled by why does freedom of religion, for example, because freedom of religion has been uh, used as one central argument, for example, f uh, for uh, uh, not not like legalizing, but tolerating the ayahuasca churches in the US. But, mm -hmm. but for someone who hasn't really, who isn't like acquainted with that argumentation, how would you uh, define the main points of why freedom of religion should cover drug use? Well, I mean, to some extent, you know, in that American tradition, right, um, where really uh, there were efforts to try to make an argument of religious freedom around cannabis. And by and large, none of those have succeeded in the United States. But it was not, wasn't, you know, by the way, the Rastafarian um, tried to make this argument also in South Africa, And I think there's one or two other countries. So it's not unique to the United States of people making a religious claim around cannabis use. Um, but I don't think, I don't, I think maybe the Rasta, I'm, I'm actually not sure whether or not how it turned out in South Africa and whether the Rastafari have succeeded anywhere. You know, the Rastafari originally from Jamaica. Um, when it comes to psychedelics, because of the strength of this notion of religious freedom, and remember, it's both the freedom on the one hand to practice your own religion free from state interference, and on the other hand, the prohibition on the state establishing any religion or formally, you know, giving preference to any religious uh, religious group. You know, that tradition has been strong in the United States, and it has, it's been defended in the courts. And what happened about 
25, 30 years ago, was that one of the uh, Native American groups, known as the Native American Church, which had been using peyote as part of their religious tradition, uh, they basically made a constitutional argument that this is a sacred sacrament and, and central to our, uh, our, our, our tradition. And, and, and the Supreme Court upheld that right. Uh, I, I believe they upheld that right, uh, or, or I'm trying to think of it, they upheld the right or Congress then followed up by, by defending it. But one way or another, it was defended under by the Supreme Court and or by the Congress. And then some years later, maybe 20 years ago, when you had a, one of the ayahuasca-based churches, the UDV, which had come from Brazil, a fairly orthodox, um, sort of semi-Catholic church, I think, which uses ayahuasca as one of its sacraments, and the I think the founder of it in the United States, Jeff Bronfman, had been arrested with some ayahuasca, and they sued under First Amendment rights. And the U.S. Supreme Court, which has nine members by a vote, I think, of eight or nine to nothing, upheld the First Amendment right of members of this church to use ayahuasca. And since that time, there have been, I think, some defenses by other. Uh, I think Santo Dai may have made some progress in the United States as well, one of the other uh, Brazilian church, Brazilian origin churches to do this. So it's it's been an important part of our tradition. I don't know how much, I think it would play out in some other countries um, where there's some deference to religious rights. Uh, uh, you know, I, 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 but I actually don't know that much about the global context in terms of a constitutional religious right to use these substances. I think the resistance of members of the Supreme Court to extending this to cannabis was they felt that because cannabis use was used by so such a large minority of the population that it would once you allowed that it would just open up the the floodgates and so I think they were wary of going that far but when they allowed the use of peyote or ayahuasca they they drafted those decisions very narrowly I mean these things had to be well established understood as being churches with rituals and rules and all this so that w- turned out to be a somewhat effective way. The, and b- by the way, pursuing as a religious right did not preclude pursuing the medical angle or pursuing the now broader decrim argument we see happening at the lo- local and state level in the United States. It was just another option. Yeah, and for our listeners, it's also worth pointing out that the uh, that the freedom, for example, for the UDV to use ayahuasca in their rituals is just uh, concerning the UDV, so it doesn't uh, cover everyone or anyone wanting to do any sort of ayahuasca ritual. Yeah, the same thing here. I mean, I, I remember even when peyote was first legalized, it applied only, I think you had to be like racially, you had to be a member of the Native American church, which may, I'm not sure, but may have required, required that somebody be an indigenous Native American. I'm not sure people were able to join that church without having been so. Um, but what was significant about the UDV decision about 20 years ago or so was that it said, you know, you don't have to be a particular any particular ethnic group. If you are a sincere member of this church and adhere to all of the rituals, then you will be protected. <laughs> but it did not extend to people using it in non-religious contexts. It would be very interesting to to hear a court case where they evaluate the sincerity of, of some individual's religious uh, beliefs or practices. But well, I think they would look at, you know, I think what, one of the things UDV had to do was to establish, you know, the, 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 that their church really was a church. And it's always tricky when a secular court has to evaluate whether or not an organization meets the, the, the standards of being a church. But I think one of the things they actually had to do was to continue having their ceremonies even without the use of ayahuasca to show that there was more to this church than just the use of this substance. And I think they actually went through a period of doing that.
Mm. Yeah, I know a bit about how the process goes for church. I was just thinking about the the sincerity of some individual person. Like, are they thought to be a, a sincere member of that church? But yeah, let's not uh, go too deep into mm. that because I want to get a bit back to your history. So you mentioned that that you eventually became interested in in drug policy and drug policy reform. So would you talk a bit about how that happened, how that process went? Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, basically, uh, you know, as I said, I had started using cannabis when I was 18 and was intrigued by it. Um, but then I was in I was uh, in my early 20s. I was doing both a law degree as well as a PhD in political science. And I'd been specializing on U.S. foreign policy and Middle East politics for a number of years. But that had been the area where I taught my I actually taught, I think, the first course on Israel and the Palestinians at Harvard back 40 years ago. I published my first articles on Middle East studies. But I really was kind of getting uh, burnt out on that area and feeling very depressed about the prospects of, of there being some positive solutions in the Middle East or about what role I might play in that. And some friends of mine said to me, Ethan, you've always been interested in the deviant side of things. You know, you're interested in drugs and deviants and all this. Why don't you do something on that? I went to talk to some professors, and they said, sure. And this was early 80s. This was before the drug war became the huge issue it was at the end of the 80s. And and one of my professors said, why don't you start working on the internationalization of drug control and of criminal law enforcement more broadly So for your dissertation? So I said, okay. And uh, I actually managed to talk my way into the State Department's Narcotics Bureau. I got a security clearance from the U.S. government to work and write a classified report for the State Department on drug-related money laundering. And then I got various letters of uh, approval and all this, and I landed up traveling around South America and Europe to 19 countries interviewing agents of the DEA, the U.S. Drug Enforcement Administration, as well as local drug enforcement and customs officers and FBI and some intelligence officers and hundreds of people, really, uh, to really write a book about the internationalization of the U.S. drug war and of U.S. criminal law enforcement. And that examined how the DEA operated both in Latin America, how they dealt with corruption in Western Europe, how they dealt with foreign legal law systems. So I spent a lot lot of time hanging out with the guys who were in charge of enforcing drug laws. But meanwhile, I was also back home reading more and more about drugs, about the history, about the culture, about the health aspects, about addiction, about how you understand all this stuff. And, and I had always felt the drug war was a stupid idea. But the more deeply I read, I realized it wasn't just a stupid idea with marijuana. It was a stupid idea across the board. And the more I read, the more I realized that the origins of the drug war had nothing to do with sensible public health policies. They were much more drafted, you know, grounded in in racism and the you know the linking of particular feared drugs with feared minority populations, whether it was you know blacks or Hispanics or Chinese in the United States and many other Anglo countries. Uh, so I, I you know I, I had almost this two tracks of my life, Henry, you know, both in graduate school and then when I started teaching at Princeton University in 1987, where on the one hand, I was had become maybe the leading expert in the world on the internationalization of US drug control and criminal law enforcement. Uh, and was writing stuff that was, how do these guys do what they do? And on the other hand, I had started speaking out saying this entire war on drugs is a bust and that the war on drugs is undoubtedly doing more harm than drugs themselves. And so it was a kind of two-track life in my early years while I stayed in academia of, you know, on the one hand, 
I mean, I'd have funny situations where I, I would, I would, I would be at some debate with uh, somebody from the DEA or something like that about drug legalization or drug policy, and afterwards we would sit down and have a drink, and, and I would reminisce about all the DEA agents that I used to hang out with in interview who were colleagues of this guy. So it was, you know, and I think they respected the fact that I understood the drug enforcement side of things and the drug control side of things very deeply and somewhat empathically even while I was out there publicly saying that what the DEA and the custom and all the other drug enforcers are doing is essentially no different than and as futile as what the people who tried to enforce alcohol prohibition in the 1920s were doing. Do you think like, uh, is drug war in your, your mind a synonym for prohibition? Or no, is there a I, I would not say so. Be, uh, what I would say is that, first of all, you can have... You know, there are different there are different levels and degrees of drug prohibition. You can have a country like Switzerland or the Netherlands or Portugal where you have drug prohibition, but it's a with this heavy emphasis on health and harm reduction and human rights, and that you typically don't have a big drug war going on there. Then you can have a country like the United States. Or, or countries in Latin America, or for sure the Philippines, or other countries in Asia, where they have a highly punitive form of drug prohibition that really goes out and persecutes people who use drugs, that puts people who sell drugs in prison or even executes them. And so I regard those as a drug war. I basically regard the punitive forms of drug prohibition as the drug wars, and I regard the kind of harm reduction model of, uh, of, of prohibition as really not a drug war. But part of what define when you think about drug war, it's really about waging a public policy as if it's a war. It's the notion that it's okay in wars you're allowed to have collateral casualties, right? Whereas in domestic criminal justice, you're not allowed to have collateral casualties. The cops are not allowed to to shoot after an escaping criminal and risk hitting some innocent bystander. But in war, you're sometimes allowed to do that, right? Uh, uh, you know, you know, there's an element of 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 um, of of taking into account whether it's fiscal responsibility or whether it's the science, uh, you know, never mind just the human rights that happens in when you don't have a war. In a war, you oftentimes throw those things away, right? In a war, you oftentimes use warlike rhetoric. You try to dehumanize and and stigmatize your enemy. Well, those are not typically things you do in a non in a non warlike context. So. So I regard the drug war as, to some extent, synonymous with punitive drug prohibition. It's interesting to think about where, for example, countries like the Philippines or the United States fall uh, in the spectrum of rhetoric. Like in the United States, even though the drug war is still like being waged very heavily, the rhetoric that's like normal in the politics of Philippines is still a bit different in the sense that the president is like encouraging people to kill, take take justice in their own hands and kill drug dealers. Yeah, I mean, and, uh, I, it's interesting to see what happens now that Duterte is out in the Philippines, if anything. Well, unfortunately, uh, I think Duterte's you know successor, Marcos, the son of the former president and dictator, uh, he may use less of that very abrasive and, and horrific rhetoric that Duterte used. And, and be less explicit in encouraging cops to go out and just kill anybody who has anything to do with, with uh, methamphetamine. But I think overall, his policies are not going to be all that much better. I mean, it's interesting that even in the Philippines, there is a small harm reduction community. There are people who are trying to do the right thing, trying to help people. There are 
human rights organizations that are trying to push back. The Philippines is still isn't in, in to some good extent a democracy. They actually just did have a, a somewhat you know free election. In which, sadly, you know, the majority, you know, the majority, remember, Duterte always had majority support from the Filipino people. And his successor, Marcos, uh, the son of the former dictator, you know, also has majority support. So it's not just about terrible leaders. It's about a population supporting terrible policies. Uh, Now, you know, obviously it varies. In much of Asia, you still have a lot of the drug war rhetoric. And you can sometimes hear that in the Arab world. You can sometimes hear it in parts of the Western world and parts of Africa. In the United States, we have, you know, basically the drug war rhetoric um, has really been diminishing uh, really over an extended period of time. And you hear a lot less of it now. Now, mind you, you get a new drug like fentanyl and a massive problem with people dying of, of, overdose, of overdoses, most, most of which involves drugs that contain fentanyl, a highly, you know, a drug, an opioid that's very powerful and from which people can die easily. Uh, but I'll tell you this, Henry, literally, if you think about the U.S. drug war in the United States really took off around 1986 or so. And it was at a hysterical pitch for about four years. It's about until around 1990. Really, when we got involved in the first war in the Gulf War, when, um, you know, the, the, when, when uh, Saddam Hussein first invaded Kuwait and the U.S. sort of led the coalition in what many people regarded as a more just war than, the, than obviously the one that followed. But all of a sudden we had a real war and that kind of displaced the drug war. To some extent, it, to, one, to the extent that one thinks of, of places like the United States is always needing to have some war going on. And if we don't have a real war, well, then the drug war, some other domestic war sort of replaces it, both rhetorically and sometimes in terms of actual resources. But I'll tell you, even in the early 90s, 1990s, even by the time, I don't can't remember if it's if it's the, uh, I mean the first drugs are under the first George Bush president in 1989-1990 was William Bennett, a person who really, you know, was really a vicious drug warrior, and I think he employed the rhetoric of the drug war. But within a few years, and certainly as Bill Clinton came in, the drug czars no longer even wanted to call it a drug war. You know, they didn't want to say we had, they didn't want to use the phrase war on drugs because they realized that even 30 years ago, that most Americans realized the drug war had failed and most presumed that the war on drugs could not succeed. Right. So that rhetoric of the war on drugs really began to diminish even as the resources devoted to the actual on-the-ground drug war, the money going to police departments and, and for incarceration, all that sort of stuff, continued to increase throughout the 1990s and into the 2000s. So, so you know, we do, I mean, obviously some countries are more drawn to this horrific rhetoric and the demonization and stigmatization of the people who use drugs. Um, it also taps in in some countries with racism. I mean, in most countries, you can't be blatantly anti-black, right? It's just not accepted in the popular discourse, right? That racism has to be not articulated as blatantly as it was back decades ago. But you understand that politicians understand, other people understand that when you start going on about, about the drug dealers, the drug pushers, the drug addicts, that the imagery that pops up for many people, especially white people in majority white countries, is of a dark-skinned person, right? So it becomes a kind of coded language to continue propagating and perpetuating some sorts of racist, uh, you know, racist impulses and racist and ultimately policies that are racially disproportionate in their impact in the broader population. It's very inter- interesting. I think in Finland that that connection may not be the case 
Yeah, because I mean, Finland, you're, you're, I mean, I mean, look, Finland, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but your immigrant population is a smaller part of the population, especially, and especially immigrants of darker skin, you have that, but it's relatively smaller than it is in most European countries, right? And I think even if you look in a place like Sweden, you know, if you look in, because even in Europe, right, the, 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 the people who are being locked up, arrested and locked up for, on drug charges are oftentimes disproportionately people of color. They're, they're immigrant population or the children of immigrant population. Um, you know, oftentimes it may be from North Africa, it may be from Africa, uh, sometimes from Southern Europe. Uh, you know, there's that, there is that racial dimension to it. And it, it may be the case, I mean, what happens in many societies is that these sort of second generation immigrants may be disproportionately involved in the drug business, the illicit drug business, but their arrest rates and incarceration rates are greater than the proportion that are that that are that are involved. So you may have I, I, I'm making up these numbers, but you may have a place where 10% of the population, you know, are darker skinned immigrant population. Maybe 20% of all the drug smuggling is involves that population, but 40% of the people going to jail may be from that population. So I think it's that sort of thing I think you'll oftentimes see in Europe. But remember, it's not always about race. In the Philippines, the, the drug war has nothing to do with race. It, there, it's much more about class. Uh, and I think that's true in a lot of other populations. So you don't need... Drug wars exist even in the absence of racism, um, but typically in countries where race is playing a role or ethnic ethnicity is playing a role, typically the folks in power can use the drug war as a way to target racial or ethnic minorities in ways they might not otherwise be able to do so. Yeah, it's a good excuse. And I, yeah, I did listen to your conversation with Jida and Lasko from the Philippines, mm-hmm. and you covered a bit that that topic of like, is there a racist uh, racist element to that? But in in Scandinavia, I think there's a big difference even between Sweden and Finland because Sweden does have quite a big uh, current problem with like gang violence escalating. Mm-hmm. So we don't have. Uh, when compared to Sweden, we don't have that kind of a problem in Sweden. Yeah, in in, in Finland. Yeah, sorry. no, fin- Finland, Finland is fortunate in that regard. Um, you know, look, the other thing you have happen is when you look. I, I whether one's looking, you know, 30 years ago at the old Romanian d- dictator Ceausescu, or whether one's looking at Putin today. You know, what is the one of the first things they do as soon as they see any dissent happening in their population or people rebelling against their authority? They say those are the drug users, those are the drug addicts, those are the potheads. Those or whatever. So that 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 way in which you have that targeting of of you know people want to and, and oftentimes it's less directed at ethnic minorities in those cases than it is at students, you know, college students or things like that. So it's it's a common refrain that you try to appeal to the sort of middle class voters or the middle class citizens who you know, are not particularly authoritarian or right-wing or repressive in their views about uh, uh, politics, but who are deeply fearful of drugs, fearful about their kids, fearful about political change, fearful about rebellious students, fearful about ethnic minorities. And that's where you see the conflation, conflations oftentimes happening. Yeah, I think in general, of course, it's always been... uh sort of good policy that if you want to oppress some part of the population, you talk about them in language that, for example, emphasizes how dirty or or like 
uh, yeah, how dirty or, or like unhuman they are. And this, of course, can yeah. lead even to genocides. The same logic. Yeah, I mean, and Henry, I mean, Henry, it's interesting you raise that issue because, you know, uh, one thing when people ask me is that, you know, why, what, what partially drew, drew me to this issue? Um, and obviously, you know, having tried marijuana when I was 18, that, that had some impact on me. But I think the really, the, really the, the most important reason that I landed up devoting, you know, most of my adult life to the cause of drug policy reform and ending the drug war and advocating for more humane drug policies, it really has to do with my consciousness as a Jew. And, you know, on my mother's side of the family, you know, they came to America in the late 19th, early 20th century. But one of the reasons, you know, that they left was they were coming from Lithuania and maybe some parts of Latvia, and they were fleeing some of the pogroms, you know, the persecutions that were happening at that time where Jews were sometimes, you know, being attacked by both, you know, local authorities, by local populations, sometimes led by priests. And, and, you know, and oftentimes being killed and raped, and it was, you know, a very precarious and dangerous situation. And so I was conscious of anti-Semitism from that side, but much more significantly, uh, my father was born, uh, and both my parents were Jewish, my father was born in Berlin in 1928, five years before Hitler came to power. And, and when he's five years old, Hitler comes to power. And, you know, all of a sudden he's a little kid wearing a yellow star and all of a sudden, you know, going from being a normal German citizen in a fairly assimilated Jewish family living in Berlin to all of a sudden becoming part of this highly demonized, stigmatized minority that Hitler was, you know, not yet talking about Holocaust, but about the dirty Jews and all this sort of stuff. And, and then his father... Um, who he didn't know very well because his parents got divorced when he was young, but his father had fought for Germany in the First World War and won the Iron Cross. And then in the second, uh, in the late 30s and early 40s, uh, he's living in Paris with his second wife. And when the Germans, you know, move into France, uh, the French authorities working with the Gestapo and whatever, he's picked up sent to Drancy, the French detention camp, and then sent to Auschwitz where he's killed. And, and so for me, the consciousness, and my dad and, and his mother and rest of the family managed to escape in 1939 when my dad was 11. They ended up going to Ecuador in South America because that was the country they could get into. And eventually he came to the U.S. after the war. But that consciousness um, from within my own family of, of, you know, that my grandfather, my father's father, you know, had fought for his country, Germany, and then been killed in Auschwitz, that they had been persecuted. Um, that notion of what happens when uh, political leadership, when government, and ultimately majorities of societies get behind the persecution and demonization and sometimes the destruction of minority populations, I mean, that was kind of a core thing, understanding the threat of fascism, Nazism, that type of in intolerance. And, you know, there, there's a book by uh, Thomas Sass, the famous anti-psychiatrist, anti-psychiatry psychiatrist, a sort of libertarian. Mind. He wrote, his most famous book was The Myth of Mental Illness. But he wrote a few books about drugs and the drug war, and one of them was called Ceremonial Chemistry. And he looked, and I think the subtitle was The Ritual Persecution of Jews and Witches and things like that. And he looked throughout history at which minority populations, whether it was women who were unusual and persecuted as witches by the Inquisition, whether it was the gypsies, I mean, now called the Roma, whether it was other ethnic minority populations, uh, you know, he looked at, and that basically 
I and they and many others saw the persecution of people based upon the drug they put in their body, the persecution of quote-unquote drug users, but, you know, users of that drug, not that drug, right? Users of alcohol weren't being persecuted except for a brief period and during alcohol prohibition. Users of, of, of nicotine and tobacco were not being persecuted, although we see increasing subjugation of people who use tobacco these days. Um, but by and large, that notion that because you use that drug, because you put that thing in your body, we, the state, have the right to take away your freedom, your job, your property, even your children, right? That notion just struck me as abhorrent. And that, no- that was that element of the drug war which resonated to me with the, with the anti-Semitism, with racist you know, fascism, with those persecutions. And so to the extent that I found myself as a young man in my, in my 20s and 1980s looking around and asking, so what is it? Um, you know, where are, where are the lingering elements of that type of persecution in our society? The thing that hit me square between the eyes was the war on drugs. I mean, that was what felt like, if not the last remaining, certainly the, the principal last remaining persecution that an otherwise liberal society would tolerate. And I'll say that when I ultimately connected with George Soros, the philanthropist, in 1992, when he, you know, I got a call out of the blue inviting me to lunch, and the result of that was my leaving Princeton and starting my organization. But I think that for Soros, although, uh, you know, I, I, you know, his belief in an open society, his having survived, you know, life in Hungary under the fascist dictatorship and then the Nazi occupation late night in, at the end of the war, 1944-45, that had obviously shaped his open society values. And although when we sat down and talked the first time, we barely talked about that. He was much more interested in the broader policy things and the ways in which a prohibitionist approach you know, resulted in vast black markets and crime and violence and, you know, uh, you know, uh, violations of civil liberties and all that stuff. I think on some level, it was also the ways in which he was coming to this issue. And so it's been for me and quite a number of other drug policy reform leaders, that core sensitivity and understanding um, is, uh, you know, is really, uh, you know, a core part of, of, of what drives me. It's interesting, you know, on my podcast, I re- the episode's not up yet, but I recently interviewed this uh, German fellow, Norm Oler, a writer who wrote a book about drugs in the Third Reich. And, and part of the book is about how the German army used methamphetamine and how what a crucial role it played in the Blitzkrieg in, in I think, uh, mid-1940, where they, in 12 days, took over Belgium and, and conquered France and went basically to the British Channel. And, you know, uh, and, and, but the other half of the book is about Hitler and his relationship to his own drug use, because it turned out he had a special relationship with a doctor and was using all sorts of psychoactive substances. But, you know, it just made me think again, reading that, the ways in which you know, uh, you know, uh, in the early days of the Nazi regime in 1933, 34, 35, they were lumping the drug users with Jews and homosexuals and the Roma, the gypsies and others um, as demonized minorities, as dirty, as polluting. That whole notion of looking at these, these demonized minorities as bacteria that can infect the broader population that were undermining the, uh, the purity of, of, the, of the polity. Yeah, that's a really fascinating area and of course like hitler was at least in his final days a major druggie himself and was prescribed this cocktail of uppers and downers also uh, an interesting bit of history uh, of finland um 
my understanding is that methamphetamine played quite a big role in the Finnish Winter War, war defense, defending against the Soviet aggression. Yeah. So there's a lot of stories of Finnish soldiers like skiing two days in a row uh, uh, under the influence of shitloads of meth. Well, exactly. I mean, I think it, it's interesting because part of the of the book, what I learned is that the methamphetamine really appeared to play an important role in that initial blitzkrieg um, uh, west to take France and Belgium. It appeared to play some role in the in the in the invasion of Poland the year before in 1939, and it also appeared to play some role in the initial invasion of the Soviet Union in 19, was that 41, I think. Um, but then as it became a war of attrition, methamphetamine became much less valuable because the great value of methamphetamine was in shock troops, in, as you say, a ski patrol that had to stay up for two days, in terms of tank drivers that had to stay up for a few days. And the key thing with methamphetamine is it can be a very effective drug, but you absolutely need to have the opportunity to rest thereafter. You know, one reason why you still have methamphetamine, or not methamphetamine, um, you know, being uh, allowed for, like, for example, long-distance pilots, I think, in the United States, even today, I believe, uh, long-distance pilots are allowed to use amphetamine um, or modafinil, which is a, another type of uh, stimulant that, you know, supposedly has less euphoria associated with it, because it's important to be able to stay awake for those flights. I think there was an issue 20 years ago where some U.S. Uh, planes, uh, 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 I think in Afghanistan, and they they put bombs, they bombed the wrong place and killed innocent people. And so there was an investigation, and people brought attention to the fact that the pilots had used amphetamine. And in the investigation, what they found, and then I think they looked out more broadly, that in fact it appeared that there was no relationship between the amphetamine use and the mistake the pilots made. But that conversely, when you looked historically, the United States had never had no record of any military pilot um, having a crash because of their use of amphetamine, whereas they had dozens of cases of pilots crashing because of fatigue and exhaustion. So it was seen that amphetamine could, in fact, play a productive value. But you think about it, the, what amphetamines basically do is they take out an, uh, an advance on tomorrow's energy reserves. So if you use it, you can use it productively and effectively, but you need to be able to allow your body to rest the next day to catch up, to replenish. If you're continually taking the drug over and over, you're just going to crash further and further and further. And if you use it over a sustained period of time, it's really going to undermine your health. And I mean, it's, you know, not a good drug. It's not, whereas opiates, you develop a tolerance, you can use it for the rest of your life if you have a reliable dose and it's not going to do that much harm. Stimulants don't work that way. And so in a war of attrition, it seems like amphetamine, you know, was much less effective. Uh, but in those quick wars, um, or for pilots or others who need that emergency thing, you know, can really make a difference. Hmm. I gotta say, I really appreciate you sharing that part about your family history. It really like uh, makes it easier to understand where you're coming from. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I'll tell you, in in all my dec, you know, because I really started becoming a public advocate in 1987 when I started teaching at Princeton, and then when the drug war was going crazy, and I wrote some articles and you know, had sort of, a, you know, became very in the public eye. Um, but I typically would not talk about that. 
uh, it's really more now that I've stopped running my organization, I'm reflecting on my, my years of doing this, that I talk a bit more openly about it. I think also, I mean, I hate to say this, but, you know, the, the issues around identity politics, people tapping into their ethnic identity, you know, this sort of stuff, which has become, you know, a much bigger thing in the United States and some other countries, and I think is actually becoming more, far more destructive than constructive at this point, both on the left and on the right. Um, but I also noticed that, you know, it becomes the context of, of talking about my own commitment in, in that way as somebody with a powerful sense of connection to Jewish history and our history of persecution uh, uh, is something that I think more resonates in the kind of public ear these days than it would have when I was first getting going. Hmm. Um, getting back a bit to the concept of a drug war, I'm thinking about like uh if you can imagine a future vantage point from where, looking back, you can see a point where the drug war was no longer being waged, could that, could such a point be recognized from that kind of a vantage point? Is there like some bare minimum that would need to happen in order for you to be able to say that we're no longer waging a drug war? Well, you know, it depends. I mean, I'm no expert on, you know, we, we live in a world of what, 200 different countries and highly different cultures and societies. Uh, we do know that when you have real wars going on, drug wars become secondary. It's, you know, uh, they get displaced by real wars by and large. It's hard to sustain both at the same time. I think, unfortunately, Henry, that, you know, typically it, it, it's, it's almost as if, at least when I think of my society and many others, we need a boogeyman, first of all, and, and, and a boogeyman, somebody who everybody can hate, who can fear, the thing that scares the children. Now, to some extent, it doesn't have to be a drug one. I mean, I think, for example, I remember looking at the, the children's um, cartoons, you know, and at one point, or like, or if you look at the action movies, and, and if we go back, or the James Bond movies, or, or whatever it might be, if you look going back into the 50s and 60s, in many of them, it was about the communists, right? I mean, the communists were, was the big thing. And then in the 80s and 90s, it becomes the drug traffickers. They become the demonic force, right? The criminal organizations, but the drug traffickers. And you see that it even gets into children's shows, but it certainly gets into the action films and all this sort of stuff. Um, but then in 2001, following 9-11, uh, it becomes the terrorists, and so to some extent, the terrorists begin to displace the drug traffickers. Now, there's a big effort to make a, the, the, the connection between drugs and terrorism. And so, you know, ba the politicians and some of the heads of security services try to establish a powerful link there. And there are obviously links because terrorists will, in fact, engage in drug smuggling and stuff like that in order to raise revenue and money. But by and large, they pushed it. The vast majority of, of drug trafficking and smuggling has nothing to do with terrorism. And the vast majority of terrorism across the political spectrum has almost nothing to do with drugs. But, you know, so you see that. Then I remember this hopeful moment. I remember my daughter was young and I was watching some of the cartoons with her. And and who were the new bad guys? They were the environmental depredators, the people cutting down forests, you know, destroying the climate. And so I go, oh, well, here's some reason for hope. Now we have a new boogeyman. It's the people who are destroying the climate, destroying the trees, and, and this will displace the drug traffickers. So people can grow up hating the people destroying the climate, which is, I'd rather have them hate that than, than hate the people who are involved in drugs and such. So I think on some level, there's a way in which 
the way in which so many societies seem to need some boogeyman, somebody to hate, whether it's a foreign enemy or a domestic enemy or whatever, I think it's almost something about humankind. And, and it's not universal, and it's not true throughout all times and places, but it's unfortunately very common in many societies. Now, the question is, when it comes to drugs, I mean, I see even the United States, even as we pulled back from drug war rhetoric, really more and more over the last 20 years. And then since, if you think about us pulling back from drug war policies in the U.S. over the last 10 years or so, I mean, there was a, there was a very significant change that happened in 2013, right after we won the uh, ballot initiatives in Colorado and Washington to legalize marijuana and the Obama administration, you know, hemmed and hawed trying to figure out what to do. But it really resulted in a change in U.S. drug policy, both domestically and internationally, that was historically significant. Um, But even in a place where we're rolling back the drug war policies and putting, we're arresting fewer people in the United States for drugs, we're locking up fewer people, it's much less of a priority. At the same time, it does feel like, Every year there's a new drug, like it might be, you know, now it's obviously, uh, now it's fentanyl, which obviously represents a greater threat to health than any illicit drug we've ever encountered in the United States. I mean, 100,000 people died of uh, overdose fatality last year, and the large majority involved fentanyl being mixed with other substances. But, you know, before that, it was um, synthetic drugs. Or it was some, you know, various synthetic drugs, uh, spice, K2. Uh, uh, it might involve methamphetamine in the early 2000s. So we're, I think we're always looking for a new demonic drug and people are always willing to accept, you know, oh, this drug causes people to tear their faces off or this drug eats all your bodily skin or all this, you know, some kind of crazy notions um, that are out there that either have no basis in fact or almost no basis. So I, I think that fear around the new substance and what it might do to our brains, our behavior, and especially the brains and behavior of our children, I think that's not going to end. And I'll tell you something. Right now, since I've stopped running Drug Policy Alliance five years ago, the issue I find myself more and more interested in is the fight over e-cigarettes and tobacco harm reduction. Because I look at this issue And, you know, I hate big tobacco like anybody else, and I hate cigarettes like most people. And my dad died of a massive heart attack when he was 58, and his pack-a-day cigarette habit probably contributed to that. But now you have real tobacco harm reduction. You know, that for people who can't quit smoking, switching to uh, e-cigarette or switching to these uh, heated tobacco products, the most famous one is called Icos, um, or switching to snus, you know, the thing that they use in, Scan- in Sweden and uh, now Norway, yep. um, the pouch, the nicotine pouch or the tobacco pouch or the nicotine versions of snus. There's all of these things now, you know, while you can still get dependent upon them and they can be difficult to quit, all the science is suggesting that these things are anywhere from 70 to 99% less dangerous than smoking tobacco. Right. And so there's an overwhelming argument for trying to have government policy encourage people who still smoke to switch to these other things if they can't quit. But I'm being drawn into this thing because the vast majority of people in my country, many others, don't know this. They believe that e-cigarettes are as dangerous or more dangerous than real cigarettes, which is crazy. 
right? They believe that nicotine causes cancer, which is not true. What causes cancer is when you all the combustible stuff and all the chemicals in cigarettes. It's not nicotine itself. Nicotine is what hooks you, but it doesn't kill you, right? You can take nicotine in an oral form, other forms, uh, and live to be as old as anybody else, right? I mean, so you have this massive ignorance. And because the big tobacco companies are involved in, in promoting these products as well, right? You know, all of a sudden the whole thing is demonized. And so I actually think, and one reason I've gotten drawn to this issue is not just because it's a case of all the science and public health being in favor of tobacco harm reduction, whereas the World Health Organization, the U.S. government and other governments and even the European Union and and the public opinion are all against tobacco and nicotine harm reduction. It's not just because of that disparity between what the science and health evidence says and what people believe and governments do. It's also because I believe that we may be on an increasingly slippery slope towards prohibiting tobacco products, right? And I think, you know, everybody agrees cigarettes- Making like- What? Making tobacco part of the drug war. I actually, I think there's a decent chance that 20 years from now- Marijuana will be legal in many, many countries around the world. Psychedelics will have some form of legal availability. We'll no longer be locking up people for simple possession of of other drugs, the white powder drugs, um, although they won't be legally available over the counter, I think, in most places. But people may be able to get them from their drugs, you know, their drugs from, you know, clinics or from doctors and what have you. And I think what will happen is we may have a new global prohibition emerging on tobacco products. And we will begin to talk about the tobacco traficantes. And we will not have the DEA. We will have the TEA, the Tobacco Enforcement Administration. And we will have massive drug testing, not for cannabis and cocaine, but for nicotine. And we will be locking up more and more people on drug charges. And we will have the people who were smuggling, you know, uh, cannabis and heroin, whatever, will be smuggling tobacco right now. I mean, I really think that I'm increasingly impressed that many people, even progressive-minded politicians, haven't learned their lessons. And that we will, because we know how, look, we know cigarettes are terrible. We know that if you use cigarette as the only product, that when used as intended over many decades, will kill half its consumers, right? It's a terrible, terrible product. But if what you're selling is nicotine in a non-combustible form, you know, it, you know, you're better off not doing it. But by and large, the harms are a tiny fraction of those associated with cigarettes and so, in some forms may be no more problematic than coffee, right? And yet this hysteria, because nicotine is connected with tobacco, is connected with all these things, is connected with big tobacco. I, I, I'm really, I'm really concerned that we could be heading down that slippery slope. Even some of my allies who are in favor of tobacco harm reduction say, "Well, Ethan, if we could only reduce the percentage of the population using cigarettes from the 10 or 12 or 15 percent where it is today in many societies down to two or three percent, why not make it illegal at that point?" To which my response is, don't you realize that apart from marijuana, the entire global drug war, the the global black market worth $400 billion a year, the horrific crime and violence and corruption in parts of Latin America and the Caribbean and sometimes Africa and Asia, you know, the high levels of incarceration and arrests in other parts of the world, don't you realize that that entire problem, apart from the cannabis piece, involves less than 2% of the population using heroin, cocaine, methamphetamine, all this sort of stuff.
So, you know, it, it's, I, I worry about the stupidity of our leadership and of the public because you can't just blame it on leaders. Leaders sometimes reflect what the public wants and the tendency of the media. I mean, for the media, having a new demonized drug and a new demonized population, you know, makes sense. Look, the other thing you also see with tobacco, when I was growing up, smoking was just as common among highly educated and affluent people as it was among middle-class people or lower-class lower people. But as people become more aware of the health warnings, the more affluent people and the more educated people almost entirely stopped smoking, and their kids didn't start, right? Because, you know, they looked forward to a long life. They had other sources of pleasure they could pay for. But smoking remained at relatively higher levels among poorer people for whom the pleasures of smoking loom larger in their lives, who were less thinking about whether they would live to be 85 or 90 and see their grandchildren or great-grandchildren, right, who are less, more pessimistic about their prospects. And so it becomes much easier to stigmatize a particular drug the more it's associated with people who are poorer or darker-skinned or lower class, right? Nobody was going to you know, do the types of, of, of demonization of cigarette smokers 50 years ago when cigarette smoking was common among the highly educated and the powerful and the affluent. Same thing, of course, happened with opioids. You know, back, you look back in American history and the history of other countries. So when opioids were broadly consumed in the 1870s and 1880s, the principal consumers were middle-aged white women. And nobody wanted to put, you know, their, their, their white grandma or auntie behind bars for using a substance that was somewhat stigmatized. But when that group of people reduces their use dramatically, and when the opioids get more and more associated with Chinese immigrants and minorities, and then with deviants, urban deviants, that's when you get the new prohibitions. So I think we're, we're, we're really at true risk of reproducing the war on drugs, but substituting the drugs of the past with tobacco in the future. Regarding a snooze uh, in Finnish, it's called nuuska. There's a re- weird uh, legal situation in Finland because uh, you cannot buy it legally from Finland, but you can go, for example, uh, to a cruise ship that goes to right. Sweden. And at the minute it cro- crosses the border and the tax-free mar- market opens there, you can buy uh, some, I don't know what the quantity is, but you can buy some quantity of snooze to bring back with you. You cannot sell it, yeah. but you can possess it. And it's like... A, Yeah, it's weird because I don't know of anything else that's in I, I, Henry, similar I tell you, kind of. It is of. so dumb. I mean, for Finland to do that stuff. I, I mean, first of all, why not just you look? Sweden achieved the lowest rate amongst of smoking among men in the world, and there's more or less a consensus that it did this with snus. Right, that basically the rapid shift from smoking to snus resulted because it was mostly mostly it was initially mostly men who liked snus, but basically women weren't using it. Although that's changing now, right? So you saw you know this dramatic drop in smoking and of deaths associated with smoking related diseases when people switched to snus, and you now have 30 years of evidence of people using snus, and you even have a new generation of young people using snus who never smoked. Right. So people say, oh, my God, you know, people didn't smoke now, young people. But it, it seems to be the case, from what I understand, that the health risks of snus are pretty, very, very, very low. Right. And so snus has been effective, especially in Sweden, to some extent in, in, in Norway. But the fact that I think it's banned in much of the European Union, Sweden was an exception. Um, the fact that in Finland you have to go on a cruise ship or smuggle it from other parts of Scandinavia. I mean, why the hell doesn't Finland basically 
make it legally available, right? Tax it, regulate it, control it, encourage people who can't stop smoking to switch to snus. Or now they even have these things, uh, you know, snus has tobacco uh, in it and you put it, you know, that thing in your, uh, uh, in your mouth. Now there's versions that, are, that don't even have tobacco. It's just pure nicotine, which may be even a tiny bit less risky than snus. I'm very curious because, you know, the big tobacco organization, Philip Morris International, which of all PMI, which of all the big tobacco companies has been the one most openly committed to making the transition from selling cigarettes to selling the non-combustible forms of tobacco and nicotine, they just recently said they're going to buy a Swedish match, which makes snus. So it's going to be very interesting how the politics of this whole thing play out. Uh, but I mean, the truth of the matter is, you know, if we could evolve from a world of today where over a billion people a year around the world are consuming tobacco in a smoke combustible form and seven to eight million people a year around the world are dying prematurely because of it. If and meanwhile, you have maybe 100 million people who are using the non-combustible forms of tobacco and nicotine around the world. If we could somehow switch that so that the number of people who are smoking was cut by 90%, 80-90% down to 100 million, 200 million, whereas the number of people using these non-combustible forms went up to a billion or even 2 billion, even double the number of smokers, it would represent one of the greatest advances in public health in human history, right? It would transform nicotine from a horrific substance when, caught, when consumed in the form of smoking, because nicotine hooks you and then the smoking kills you, into nicotine as a relatively benign substance, which some people have a hard time quitting and which people may get hooked on. And, you know, that's not appealing, but where the health consequences of that are a tiny fraction of those associated with smoking today. But it, I mean, I look at I mean, this is also, you talk about the person who's really the kind of evil figure in all this is somebody who I otherwise admire in many respects. It's Mike Bloomberg. You know, Mike Bloomberg, one of the richest guys in America, one of the richest guys in the world, probably got $50 billion to his name. He's a huge philanthropist. He was the mayor of my city, New York City, for 12 years. Yeah, I think he did a relatively good job, although I disagreed with a number of his policies. But he put a lot of money in trying to reduce smoking around the world, which was a great thing. But a few years ago, he, he said, I'm going to give $160 million to try to restrict and even ban vaping all around the world. And it's just the, I mean, he's ultimately going to do more harm and probably cause more death and dying because of that initiative than all the lives he's saving with his other philanthropy. He gave $100 million to the World Health Organization, WHO's foundation, and they're totally anti-scientific when it comes to this. He's done the same thing with the American health agencies, the Center for Disease Control and such. I mean, it, it's a form of corruption by an incredibly wealthy philanthropist who is smart on many things but totally wrongheaded on this issue that's doing immense harm, you know, and so, I don't know, as you can see, I get quite passionate about this issue now in a way that I, I still am but certainly used to be about the prohibition of cannabis and all the stupidity that was out there with other drugs as well. Hmm. Let's get actually a bit, <laughs> bit into the topic of cannabis. I'm thinking like... Uh, since there's some examples already from states and countries that have gone like done full legalization of cannabis, and there still still seems to be 
a black market after that? Uh, well, f- first question actually in relation to that might be that has it been a surprise for you that the extent of the black market still existing existing after full legalization? No, not not at all, not at all. You know, back when I was still a professor 30 years ago, I started researching a paper called Whatever Happened to the Black Market in Booze in Alcohol? Because, you know, when the United States repealed alcohol prohibition in 1933 at the national level, um, you know, the black market did not just disappear. I mean, what had happened over the, you know, 14 years of national alcohol prohibition and in some states, decades of state alcohol prohibition was you had built up criminal networks. People had started producing, you know, alcohol in their bath, bath, you know, bathtub gym, backyard stills. I mean, there was massive smuggling going on massive illicit production. And when the United States, you know, basically ended prohibition, first of all, many of those prohibitions remained. It's like, I don't think the state of Mississippi ended its statewide prohibition until the 1950s, early 60s. Even when you travel around America today, there are still many cities and counties that are what we call dry towns or dry counties because you're not allowed to buy alcohol in those places. You can possess it in your home, but you can't buy it anywhere. So what happened was the black market persisted for a long period of time. People continued selling it. People continued smuggling it. You know, the mafia was looking for new ways to stay involved. So they started getting involved in the transportation business of legal alcohol. People had developed a taste for whiskey made out of corn during alcohol prohibition, and they weren't ready to go back to rye-based whiskey. So even some of the legal alcohol companies started making their own corn whiskey because they know people's tastes had changed. So in fact, there was a very dynamic black market in alcohol that continued into the 1930s and even 1940s. And then in some states, Tennessee, Kentucky remained dynamic until some recent decades. But what happens over time is that eventually the price of alcohol comes down, people get used to it being legally regulated. Um, and so now the major black markets are basically in after hours clubs or people, young people under the age of 21, but there's no violence associated with that, right? So I've always assumed that as we legalized cannabis, we already had a illegal marijuana industry in the United States that was worth tens of billions of dollars a year. It was obviously the case that as you try to shift towards a legally regulated market, the old illegal market's not going to go away right away. First of all, many of those people are unable or unwilling to participate in the legal market. They don't want to be regulated. They don't want to adhere to all the regulations, the environmental regulations, the labor regulations, the payment of taxes. So we knew that many people in the illicit market would be unable or unwilling to make the transition. We also knew that many people who were using cannabis, they already had their established connections among people, you know, neighbors and others growing cannabis illegally, and and they were fine to do that. We also knew that some of the people growing it illegally were going to be able to sell it for less than the, it could be bought in the legal shops, where taxes made it more expensive than buying on the black market, right? So all of those things were obvious. So I think what we realized was that in those states which did not have a well-developed illegal market, they would be able to make the transition to fully legal markets sooner than later. But in a state like California, in a state like California, which had the which had and still has the biggest illegal marijuana production in the US, if not the world, which was exporting its marijuana illegally to other states and is still doing that today, 
and also which had not regulated, even though it was the first state to regulate medical marijuana, it did not have a statewide regulation until the year before full legalization in 2016. So California is going to take a very, very long time to become a a market where it's overwhelmingly legally regulated. You look in, in my state of New York, I think we'll get there much more quickly. I think in Colorado, I think in, in, in other states, in Nevada and Massachusetts, I think those states are making a much more rapid transition to the market being mostly legally regulated. And I think much the same is going to be true in Europe. I mean, you know, are people going to stop smuggling hash from Morocco? No, that's going to continue. Remember also, Henry, even when you legalize in some states, the local counties have the right to prohibit cannabis in their own towns or their own counties, to prohibit the sale of it. They can't prohibit the possession of it. So you look in California, I don't know if it's more than half of all the counties still regard there's still no legal marijuana businesses in those states. So, you know, if you want to if you want to reduce the black market as rapidly as possible, public policies regulating marijuana at the national, state, and local level have to be focused on trying to do that. Uh, But sometimes that conflicts with wanting to have more substantial tax revenue coming in. Sometimes that conflicts with wanting to have very strong environmental protections or with, you know, limiting access to kids. So you have to balance multiple policy objectives. But I think 20 years from now, the large majority of marijuana that people buy will be purchased from tax, from, from stores that are legally regulated and taxed. But as long as the illicit market still exists, does this mean that prohibition in some form will still keep going and even drug war in Not its really, more aggressive because forms? Because if you think about it, like take one second, I was talking about alcohol. So there's still some black markets in alcohol. There's still some people making alcohol illegally. Um, you know, there's still people who are smuggling it, you know, here and there. And remember, in the United States, it's illegal for anybody under the age of 21. So all all the sales to that group, you know, is illegal as well. And then, you know, many places, you know, don't allow alcohol, as I said, to be sold in, you know, in stores in their county or their city. And then, of course, you know, many, many localities require bars to close at midnight or 1 a.m. or whatever. But some of them stay open, you know, quietly, illegally to serve a clientele. So you still have a whole black market in alcohol. But by and large, there's no war on alcohol. Um, and by and large, there's no real substantial organized black market. And by and large, relatively few people are going, getting arrested or going to jail or prison for you know, alcohol commerce, right? So I think we can get to a point with cannabis and maybe other drugs where it more or less becomes like alcohol today, where it's illegal here and there and this and that. But by and large, there's no war anymore. There's no mass arrests. There's no big police divisions, law enforcement divisions being devoted to this stuff. I'm I'm kind of curious with the whole tobacco thing, because already smuggling cigarettes between low tax jurisdictions and high tax jurisdictions, whether into Europe from within among European countries or whether between the US and Canada or from low tax states like North Carolina to high tax states like New York, it's already a multi-billion dollar industry. You already have the mobsters and the gangs and the criminal organizations involved in this. But so far, it's not the subject of a big tobacco war. And so far, it's not resulting in many people getting killed, right? We don't have the whole dynamics you have with the narco traffickers. If we keep cracking down on tobacco and nicotine the way we seem to be doing, I think we're going to hit a tipping point 
where all of a sudden we start to see the illegal tobacco markets and illegal nicotine markets become more like the illegal drug markets are today with criminal organizations playing a much, much bigger role, making a lot more money, and when you start to see much higher levels of corruption, much higher levels of violence. Uh, regarding violence, um, could you elaborate on the process of why prohibition and the drug war tends to make uh, organized crime more and more violent? You know, I mean, it's not just organized crime, it's even sometimes unorganized crime becomes more violent. Mm -hmm. I think that the number one reason is if you're involved in the illicit drug business and you get involved in a disagreement um, with, you know, somebody, your supplier, your distributor, your uh, whatever it might be, you know, if that happens in the legal business, you sue them, you go to court and you work it out, Right. When it happens in the illegal business, by and large, you can't go to court. You can't say, oh, that guy screwed me out of my marijuana deal. That guy was supposed to give me this amount of money, but he ne- and this amount of money or this amount of drugs, but he never did. Or, or that guy, you know, you know uh, basically cut his, cut his cocaine and it was only supposed to be cut 50%, but he cut it 90%. You know, or, I mean, you know, when you have a dispute over that, there's no legal course to go to. I mean, you really have, you know, really two choices. One is you appeal to a criminal organization because remember one role that criminal organizations um, many years ago there was a famous economist in the United States named named Tom Schelling actually he was a teacher of mine when I was in college and he won the Nobel Prize in economics and he once wrote an article called what is the business of organized crime and his answer was the business of organized crime is extortion and conflict resolution among unorganized criminals. And so basically, if you're having a fight, a disagreement among two people or two gangs involved in the illicit drug business, their choice is either they resort to intimidation or violence among themselves if they can't work it out without violence, or they turn to a criminal organization to help resolve the dispute, which has got its own problems associated with it and may or may not result in the use of violence as well. So that's the fundamental reason that you have such high levels of violence in illicit drug markets. I think the second reason is that when in a commodity like, you know, cocaine, heroin, marijuana, you know, uh, amphetamine, when, um, when when the state says we'd rather off treat that as an illicit, illegal commodity rather than a legal regulated commodity, when they make that choice, the people who get drawn into illegal enterprise are typically the people who are more familiar with and more comfortable with and more expert in the uses of violence, right? So if you, know, if you go into the alcohol or tobacco business, by and large, you know, being skilled in the use of violence is not particularly something that your employers are looking for on your resume. But if you want to get involved in the illicit drug business, you know, being adept at the use of violence is something that's going to be a skill that is oftentimes uh, desired in that in that line of work. So I think th- those are really the two the two major reasons you see the high levels of violence um, happening there. And one of the great benefits, obviously, of of legalization. Remember, legalization doesn't mean free market. Legalization means legal regulation. Right. I mean, in in some respects, people make the mistake of thinking that prohibition represents the ultimate form of regulation. 
when in fact prohibition represents the abdication of regulation. It basically means that whatever the state is not successful in prohibiting is then going to be unregulated by the state and effectively controlled by criminal law violators and by criminal organizations, right? I mean, that's the absurdity of it, you know? I mean, the whole notion that that the best way to regulate a global commodities market is to put cops and soldiers and prosecutors in charge of it is absurd, right? The vast majority of commodities markets today, whether you're talking about alcohol, tobacco, coffee, tea, precious metals, agricultural products, those are by and large legally regulated by state. And there are civil penalties and very rarely criminal penalties for people who really violate the rules, right? But when it comes to cannabis and cocaine and methamphetamine and heroin and some of these other drugs, well, in that case, the governments have decided, although it's changing with cannabis, to have that entirely thing be illegal, which means they don't control it. They're basically ceding control to the gangsters and to criminal organizations. Uh, so, you know, that's, uh, I mean, you know, legalization certainly presents risks in terms of increased use and misuse and addiction. But the terms of benefits in terms of getting rid of the crime, violence, corruption are huge. Yeah. Yeah, one insightful thing that's also remained with me is that uh, I've talked to Neil Woods, uh, of the Law Enforcement Action Partnership, and Neil is a, an ex-undercover cop who who's against prohibition nowadays. And he was also talking, or has been talking, about how um, the more efficient drug police are, the more violent the gangs get. And that's also such a... Uh, I don't think many people ever would think, think about that happening. If you think about it also, you know, one of the negative consequences, I mean, we look at the most powerful drug trafficking organizations as being, you know, that something that we need the government to go after and destroy. But sometimes when governments are successful in 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 undermining or destroying a powerful drug trafficking organization, the result is more violence, not less. Because drug trafficking organizations, you know, they're focused on maximizing profit. And they're using, many of them will use violence or things like that only to the extent needed to protect their business. But once you don't have one gang in control and you now have all sorts of organizations now competing with one another against, that's when you see the high levels of violence. And so it's why when people look, for example, when President Calderon launched a huge attack on criminal organizations and violence went up dramatically And part of that just seemed to be about gangs, you know, fighting one another. Sometimes people look at back in the 1990s, Medellin in Colombia was a place with extraordinarily high levels of violence. And at some point, all of a sudden, it kind of, not all of a sudden, but fairly quickly, the violence started to drop very quickly. They had some dynamic new political leadership, a mayor, uh, Sergio Fajada. But the other thing that some people hypothesize is that what happened was one criminal organization basically took over the entire city, um, all the drug dealing and crime. (coughs) (coughs) And they basically imposed a sort of peace. So, you know, that's the paradoxical situation, which is, you know, I mean, oftentimes my advice to people involved in government or law enforcement is don't focus on trying to stop the supply of drugs or production, because that's ultimately a futile enterprise, right? We know from many, many decades that when you go after a particular source of drugs, you know, there's the push down pop up phenomenon that if you get rid of those drug plants, the opium, cannabis, coca, you know, in that region, that it'll just pop up someplace else. Farmers someplace else will start growing it in the same way that 
if if coffee or tea or some other product or tobacco is knocked out in a particular location because of bad weather or a or a blight or a government policy, it'll just start emerging someplace else, right? In a global commodities market, if you have a demand, there will be a supply. Now, the same thing with true with drug trafficking organizations, right? That if you knock out one organization, so long as there's a demand for the product they're selling, illicit drugs somebody else will emerge to fulfill that need, to provide that drug. So it's always seemed to me that what government should try to do is not just randomly go after the biggest drug trafficking organizations or whoever they can capture. What they should try to do is really try to focus, basically what you might call a harm reduction approach to drug enforcement, which is to focus on those organizations which are most inclined to use violence to pursue their objectives, and those ones that are most inclined to want to use their capital to expand into other areas. You know, one thing you don't want to see is criminal organizations that initially make all their money from drug trafficking, but then move into extortion or into taking over, you know, I, you look in Guatemala, I remember being there some years ago, and they were taking over the construction industry and in the cattle industry, right? You don't, so the idea would be to target those criminal organizations that are really put aside they're involved in the drug area, that are involved in the most destructive other activities in terms of violence and penetration of legal industries and and things like that. And that when you have organizations, whether they're small local organizations where this is easier to do, or whether they are large organizations, you know, to the extent that one reaches an understanding where, hey, so long as there's a demand for your drugs, somebody's going to supply it. You're the least bad actor to supply these things. Um, but if you start having dead bodies showing up in the middle of town, uh, if you start going into legal industries or engaging in extortion of local businesses, well, then you're going to come to the top of our list and we're going to target you. That's a sort of harm reduction approach to drug control, to drug enforcement. And it's one I think it's not easy to do, um, obviously. But I think it's the one that would ultimately be the most effective. It's like when I look at, say, in New York City, if you're talking to the New York City Police Department and you're saying there's people who are out there selling drugs on the street, they're selling to tourists, they're selling to kids, they're flaunting their, you know, they're intimidating local people, people are scared. And then around the corner, there's a guy who owns a local store, a bodega, selling food and other necessities to local population. And the owner of that store is also selling a little heroin or cocaine under the table to local residents. My view of the cops would be, leave that store owner alone, right? He's providing goods for local community, including some illegal ones. He's making a little money on the side. He knows his customers. He's not getting aggressive and expanding. Leave that person alone. That's the least dangerous way to make available these drugs to people in the community short of actually having legal pharmacies or clinics. Meanwhile, that guy who's out on the streets and is intimidating the local residents and creating problems, make that the focus of your law enforcement efforts. So That would be my advice. And I think to some extent in in, in cities in the U.S. and in Europe and some other places, the more thoughtful policing oftentimes does exactly that. I mean, even back, I think, in the 1980s or 90s, as I understand it, in Rotterdam, you had a system where informally the police, when they became aware of somebody who was selling heroin or cocaine out of their apartment, would pay that person a visit. And they would essentially say to them, we know who you are. 
We know what you're doing. Now listen, so long as we're not getting complaints, so long as nobody's dropping dead from the drugs you're selling, so long as the neighbors aren't complaining about too much traffic, so long as we're not hearing about problems, and so long as you're not getting overly ambitious about expanding, you're one of our low priorities. We're not going to have to pay attention to you. But if the neighbors start complaining about too much, you know, people coming in and out, if we start hearing complaints about the drugs you're selling, if we hear about you expanding, if we hear about, you know, you getting involved in violence, if we hear about you selling guns, well, you're our top priority and we're coming and shutting you down. And that's a kind of realistic, pragmatic approach to policing. It's difficult to do because it really invites corruption and things like that, but it's preferable to other types of policing that just kind of do raid any place they find out about because they say they're selling drugs. I don't know, but I would imagine that one challenge related to that is, all, is also that the stakes of going after the most violent gangs are quite high and like it's easy for police to just keep picking the low-hanging fruit, you know, doing the small pot busts in order to make the statistics look good on. Yeah, I mean, Henry, that's totally right. I mean, you know, I, I interviewed uh, David Simon, who created the famous TV show The Wire. And yeah, that's actually the, inspired me to start watching The Wire now. So oh, thanks is that, for that yeah. interview. It, no, it's, it's, it's one of the best. You know, it actually won almost no awards in the U.S. And, then year, and now, in the years since it first came out, it's become <clears throat> one of the most famous and most respected TV series ever made in America. Um, but it's, yeah. um, uh, you know, one of the points he makes is that the drug war made cops stupid. And I remember there was a police chief who was one of my allies back years ago, Joe McNamara. He had been a New York City police officer who then became the police chief in the other American cities of Kansas City and, and San Jose, California. And they both made the point that drug the drug war makes cops stupid because basically busting people for drugs is like shooting fish in a barrel. There's no challenge. It doesn't require intelligence. And and by and large, the rewards, you know, like people want to get the reward. Oh, we did a bus today. And, and, and to the extent that police departments reward p- cops for making lots of bus, you know, it was an easy way to advance in the ranks. Whereas if your job is to work on a complex white collar crime or to work on a difficult homicide case or a difficult extortion case or an uncomfortable domestic violence case, you know, those aren't the sexy cases and they take long periods of time and you don't get all the recognition. You're not in the media. So that basically the drug war has really had a devastating impact on the quality of policing. Right. And I think that is a major problem. You know, also, there's a, a friend of mine, Harry Levine, who really was the key the key scholar in the United States bringing attention to and studying marijuana arrests. You know, the United States, half of all drug arrests until a few years ago were for marijuana, like 750,000 a year out of basically a million and a half drug arrests were for marijuana. And they were overwhelmingly directed at young men of color, even though young men of color were no more likely to use cannabis or even sell cannabis than, you know, people who were not young men of color. Right. And so Harry analyzed all this data. But one of the things he came to suspect and have some pretty good evidence about was that the cops kind of liked doing marijuana arrests, even though they knew it was kind of bullshit. And even though they may have used marijuana themselves before they joined the police department or maybe even still were using it. And one reason was, you know, if you had to pick somebody up, would you rather pick up a 19 year old kid for some weed? 
who's going to sit in the back of the car and you're going to have a conversation with him and then you're going to take him down to the uh, police station and then you'll get paid for overtime while you book him. And, you know, and the kid's just a little bit high maybe or maybe just had a little weed in his pocket. And the whole experience is not unpleasant for the cops. Or would you rather be dealing with some homeless person who hasn't bathed in a week or two or is mentally ill or dealing with some drunk who may throw up in the back of your police car. Well, most police go, give me the pothead, give me the pot seller, give me the guy with marijuana in his pocket. That's a much easier person to deal with than dealing with those difficult other situations. So there's even those kind of little factors that go into police wanting to do this sort of stuff. I mean, the same thing they also sometimes found was that oftentimes the, many of the arrests would be made at the end of the police officer's um, work time. So then they could go back to the police station and take a few hours filling out the forms and get paid for overtime, you know, extra money for overtime. So there's a whole kind of other sort of corruption that goes into this sort of thing. No, but it is, you know, it, it is the tragedy because, you know, I'm, when it comes to criminal justice, I would love to see the police being more effective at going after violent crime and going after really bad domestic violence and going after white collar crime and extortion. I mean, that's where we all rely on the police to do their job. But when the reward systems within the criminal justice system favor those who are involved in drug enforcement, that's not good, you know, more broadly for society or for the criminal justice system more broadly. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to more Finnish, uh, Finnish cops starting thinking about drug policy in a more progressive way, because there's only a handful who have even hinted in that direction. But actually, an interesting uh, interesting thing that I just read today is that uh, a police officer, or, or I don't know, he's probably an ex ex-police, because I think he's now a standing MP, but uh, an MP of the anti-immigration right-wing party, Perussuomalaiset, uh, just said earlier this month that cannabis should be brought to alcohol, which is the Finnish national alcohol monopoly. Uh -huh. uh, so I so yeah, this, this guy has also said before that, uh, that he would like uh, drug abusers to be sent into an island somewhere cleaned out of the ice really? of normal people but he's also like he's given some uh reform statements in the past so this was not completely unexpected but yeah he's one of the only uh cops or ex-cops in finland well, who has well henry i gotta tell you i mean this. but it's inevitable because what you've seen in the united states and many other countries is i mean and i'm very proud of this i mean when we first began advocating for drug policy reform in the late 1980s you know a long time ago and into the 1990s and into the early part of the 2000s i mean this most of the support was coming from the the democrats from the more you know left wing left and center part of the population and there were some very prominent right wingers you know more libertarian minded you know intellectuals milton friedman the famous economist william buckley the most famous conservative intellectual in america in the late 20th century um, some of the right-wing libertarian organizations. But now you look around and you see that support for legalizing cannabis now has is now supported by a majority of Republicans, not just a big majority of Democrats. You now see Republican politicians speaking in favor of it. You see the guy Boehner, who used to be the Republican leader in, the, in Congress, is now on the board of a marijuana business, right? You see that Rick 
Perry, the right wing governor of Republican governor of Texas, who then was in President Trump's cabinet, you know, he's become an advocate for making psychedelics available for veterans. You see some of the right wing donors. Um, there was a really I mean, venal, you know, uh, the Mercer, as the family was called, but they've supported research into MDMA and ecstasy. In addition to uh, funding Breitbart and anti-climate change stuff, yeah. Exactly. I mean, funding all this horrific, horrible, right-wing, anti-democratic stuff. But meanwhile, they're funding that, that kind. If you look in the recent election in Colombia, where the former M-19 guerrilla and leftist candidate Petro Breach the kind of Trumpian candidate from the right, but both of them favored major reform of, of, of drug policy and even drug legalization. If you look in South America, you're as likely to get support for uh, cannabis legalization, other drug policy reform from the right as from the left. I mean, not the hard right, not the Bolsonaros, but the center right. In fact, it's sometimes the hard left in Cuba, in Venezuela, Um, and in Nicaragua, which were sometimes the most pro-drug war in the entire continent, right? So it's really the center-left and the center-right who tended to come together. You know, the role that Fernando Enrique Cardoso, the former president of Brazil, um, the role that uh, Juan, Manuel, uh, Juan Manuel Santos, the former president of Colombia, coming from somewhat the center-right. Uh, you know, one of his other former presidents, Cesar Gaviria. If you look in Mexico, once again, you have candidates coming from the center, center-right, uh, who basically are favoring not just cannabis legalization, but oftentimes much broader drug policy reform or even legalization. I mean, one of the remarkable things was that Now in America, where politics are so horribly polarized and you have growing extremism on the left and much more dramatically and much more, you know, scarily on the right right now, because it's it's much more likely to take ultimate power in the United States. But what you see is that not just on cannabis legalization, do you have, you know, increasing bipartisanship? Also, when it comes to rolling back the number of people locked up in prisons for long periods of time for cocaine and heroin, even there, you see a consensus emerging that we need to reduce the number of people behind bars for even the white powder drugs. And you're even seeing on harm reduction and dealing with the overdose crisis, you're seeing more support now coming from the right, joining with a historic support from the left. So I'm very proud of the fact that, you know, one of the few areas where we actually managed to make our cause a bipartisan effort, you know, was on drug policy reform. And I think, you know, I mean, with my fears about the future of, I mean, the bizarre, look, I mean, to, to go to a much broader issue, there is a better than 50-50 chance that less than three years from now, an increasingly neo-fascist Republican Party will control the White House, both houses of Congress, the Supreme Court, and the majority of state governments in the United States. I mean, something that's never, ever happened in American history before, right? I mean, it's, it's a really ominous prospect for my own country and for the world more broadly, right? And that, and that increasingly the Republican Party is showing that democratic values and the freedom of elections is actually not a top priority for them. That maintaining political power, even if it means doing away with fundamental core principles of democracy, is something that both the Republican populace and leadership is ready to accept and even embrace and advocate for. So we're talking about a horrifically ominous situation three years from now in the United States. And and quite frankly, even one year from now or less, Because the Republicans are likely to take back the House of Representatives this new November, and they have a 
50-50 chance or better of taking the Senate. So we're going to get a real taste of this fairly soon. So, but, you know, ironically, in, even in the midst of this, I don't think it's going to result in a heightened drug war in a significant way. I mean, the, the Republicans will be opposed to some of the more cutting-edge harm reduction policies like safe injection sites and things like this. You know, they're going to be less sympathetic to putting more resources into things like treatment or other types of harm reduction programs. So, you know, there will be a war on fentanyl, for example, but that's already a bipartisan thing where the Democrats are going along as well. But I think that one of the things that may survive you know, the shift in power to an increasingly neo-fascist and fascist Republican Party is that it's not necessarily going to result in going back to the old drug wars. It's going to be horrible in other sorts of ways. But, you know, I think we, we, we accomplished something significant on drug policy reform. It's a, a little silver lining. I mean, I, I, I hate to depress your listeners with, uh, you know, my, uh, what, my forebodings about the future of the American uh, political system. But, Yeah. I think uh, depressing my listeners a bit is a good thing. Oh, is that when right? It comes to actual things that are actually happening in our world and are ones that should be paid attention to. Well, I mean, I, I'll tell you, you know, back when, one thing, one reason I got interested in this issue is that when I got involved in the late 80s, um, you know, that was a period of relative peace and prosperity in America. We didn't have any big, big wars going on. And then under Clinton, 1990s, following the fall of the Soviet Union, I mean, the United States was at the height. I mean, apart from maybe the end of World War II, we were at the height of our power relative to the rest of the world at that point. We had no real wars going on, you know, a tiny little invasion of Grenada or Panama, but those things kind of ended and we withdrew very quickly. And, you know, they weren't really big things. But I have to say, you know, when I looked around the world in the late 80s and 90s, the drug war stood out as the kind of major exception to the broader movement towards higher levels of freedom and democracy and prosperity around the world. Now I look around the world and I see our drug policy reform movement has succeeded. Not, I mean, obviously Asia is still terrible. Other parts, Africa's got a long way to go. You know, but we've made a lot of progress uh, compared to where we were 20, 30, 40 years ago. But, um, you know, uh, now it's uh, sometimes, I, you know, I, I, I stay involved. This is my lifelong passion. I do my podcast about drugs, um, you know, but sometimes it feels like a healthy diversion from contemplating the broader prospects of what's going on with the fate of the world in terms of not just climate change on one level and not just, you know, I mean, I don't know, I sound bleak now, but I look, I mean, I look at really the, you know, three great threats for, I mean, climate change, obviously, but from a political level, you look at the rise of China um, you know, which will, you know, displace the U.S. and future generations in all likelihood as the most powerful, you know, society on earth. And that's a society which currently is committed to having a, a real, a really a fairly advanced form of totalitarian state control, employing artificial intelligence to engage in mass sur surveillance of the population and increasingly using its political and economic strength in order to coerce the rest of the world in order to go along with its set of values. Then secondly, you look at Vladimir Putin, who basically is essentially the de facto leader of, few, of basically white nationalism around the world, right? I mean, it's, a, it's an element of white nationalism that he is, is the global leader of, and he brings to it the mindset of a mafia boss. I mean, he's essentially the biggest gangster in the world, and that gangster mentality linked to this kind of 
white nationalist, quasi-Orthodox religious system, and what he did in Ukraine, essentially violating one of the most sacred rules that we've had in the world order since 1945, since the end of World War II, you know, that thou shall not invade and take over the territory of another country in this way. Um, you know, I mean, that which he has been doing before, but yeah, he was that he was already doing that before, and now he's done it in a highly outrageous way with a very large and substantial country. And so, so you look at that threat and what he represents, and the ways in which other governments around the world are either. You know, I mean, whether it's China, you know, allying there or, you know, him just going to Iran or, you know, you look, I mean, you look at governments, other governments, but basically trying to create a coalition of authoritarian governments around the world. You know, it almost, it, I mean, part of it almost reminds me of the evil characters, you know, Spectre in the James Bond movies. But this is a guy who's got a whole country and tons of nuclear weapons and other powers at his disposal. So you look at that threat. And then you look at what's happening in my own country in terms of the rise of Trumpism and Trumpist thinking. And meanwhile, you know, you have you have a left part of the political spectrum that just is so caught up in its own little petty. It's not bullshit, but to be so focused and obsessed with some of the issues on the left as if the rest as if neo-fascism and not lapping at the corridors of power in my country. And meanwhile, the right wing Trumpism is now something that is embraced by a good third of the country, and where another 20% of the country may be willing to vote to put them in power because they regard that as less problematic than what they fear from the left, which is crazy to my mind, but that's what's going on. And then you look finally, you know, I mean, you know, you take climate change, you, the rise of a totalitarian China, you know, Putin and his, you know, basically, you know, stepping on, on traditional norms and global society and what he represents. And then you take the rise of Trumpism, Right. Which did not, you know, and what that means for America, for America's future and the role we play as an advocate. I mean, we've always been hypocritical in the way any superpower is inevitably hypocritical about advancing its values around the world, even positive values. But I think overwhelmingly, the U.S. has been more a force for good than not. And the notion of us being displaced by China as the great superpower, people are going to look back. All the people are anti-American around the world and hate the U.S. superpower and all the bad things we've done. Once China displaces us, they're going to be looked back on the good old days when it was just the United States with its hypocritical commitment and non-commitment and exceptions to its broader values. But now with the rise of Trumpism, what that means the United States in terms of our future politics, both domestically and internationally, and the fact that that builds on what you have with Orban and Hungary, which you see evolving in Poland with the rise of the authoritarian right, which you see happening in Turkey um, with Erdogan, you know, which you see ha- the elements of happening in Latin America, where you have a, not both on the right, but also to something on the left, a kind of anti-democratic leadership that may be emerging there. So I really feel very pessimistic about, you know, where the, the future of the world in a way I've never felt before. And I simultaneously feel proud of what I've done on drug policy reform because it was a fight not just for good public policy, but also for freedom and for human rights and for decency. Um, uh, And I think we have to continue that struggle. And I think we have to continue to try and to pursue that struggle, you know, even in ways that involve bipartisanship. You know, I mean, in some respect, we're making the world free for people to smoke cannabis or do psychedelics, not just not just for people on the progressive end of the spectrum to do that, but even for neo-fascists to do that. But that's the nature of this particular fight for freedom. So, you know, I, and I think to some extent, maybe 
um, the more disciplined advocates provide a model for ways to move forward in other areas, you know, the ways of being disciplined about the language we use, of making sure that in fighting for these values, we don't just use the language of the left, but we also use the language of the center and the right, making sure that these arguments can appeal more broadly, right? Because the, the, the former cop-turned politician that you mentioned in Finland, Who's you know who you know still talks about wanting to put drug traffickers you know drug drug dealers on an island, but is now talking about legally regulating cannabis. The only way we succeed, typically, is by having more people who are coming out of law enforcement, coming out of the right, joining with people from the center and the left, and saying this is the right way to deal with drugs. Yeah, as you mentioned, we especially in the states, I guess, we live in quite polarized times. And uh, many people are even talking about the prospect of civil war because of stuff that's currently happening in your country. And uh, I'm thinking about like, because uh, as you mentioned, as you mentioned, like drug policy reform has the ability to be a topic that brings people together across like political lines that are otherwise uh, difficult to cross. And I would like to hear you talk a bit about how you've actually been able to do that because you have a broad experience in drug policy reform, both when it comes to cannabis legalization and and in a broader sense. So what do you think are the most important uh, approaches or what needs to happen in order to make it possible to people from all over the political spectrum to start thinking about the necessity of drug policy reform? And uh, how how do people, for example, who are... Uh, very value conservative or are very much against drug use? How are people who view the world from such a perspective uh, convinced that there's still a need for reform, even though they would still be opposing uh, drug use in itself? I mean, the first thing you have to do is you have to accept that there's maybe 20% of the population that you're never going to win over right, or even 30%, right, that they are ideologically opposed to what we stand for in the drug thing, that they're, you know, caught up in their own worlds. And so you, you basically, you look to undercut them, you look to overcome them, but they're not your audience. You're, the people you're fighting for, you know, are typically the people in the middle, right? It's people, you know, whose politics are, you know, center, center, center left, center right, um, uh, There are people who, you know, they may be middle-class parents who are fearful about their kids and drugs. They may be people who have never used cannabis. They may be people who, you know, I mean, so that's who we're looking for, right? It's about the people who are committed to reform trying to hold the hands of the people to make them feel more comfortable. Like what we had to do in order to win the battle on on marijuana legalization to get over 50% support so we could win the ballot initiatives and then begin, you know, first we won through popular ballot initiatives, you know, voter referendum. And then eventually we we began to win in the state legislatures, right? Because typically this was an issue where the public was ahead of the politicians in in terms of embracing reform. And that was true with medical marijuana in the late 90s. It was true with marijuana legalization beginning 10 years ago. It was also true with alternatives to incarceration for other types of drug offenses, you know, beginning 20 odd years ago. You know, by and large, the politicians were ahead of the, uh, the, the public was ahead of the politicians, at least in the U.S., in favoring reform, right? The politicians were more scared of their own shadow. So I think You know, what we realized was that a lot of this was really about reassuring, you know, I I would always have in my mind the middle class American parent, 
the one who may be on the marijuana thing, for example, who had never smoked marijuana, or if they had, it had been a long time ago. You know, they're scared because they hear that marijuana is more potent now. They're scared because they don't want kids doing this, that was things that they, that we used to do, but now they're afraid that our kids will do the same dumb things we did, but they won't be so lucky. You know, that, that whole sort of d- dynamic. And the question was how to win them over. And part of that involved, I mean, it, for us, starting off with the medical marijuana issue, Back in the, I mean, the medical industry began to emerge in the 70s and 80s, and especially around the issue of AIDS. But we took it to a political level beginning in the 1990s. And, and although I and my, my colleagues did not write the, the first medical marijuana initiative in California, that was written by local activists, I was the one who came in, organized the campaign, got raised the money from wealthy donors, hired the campaign manager, and oversaw it. And then we took it to a whole bunch of other states. But what was pivotal about starting off with the medical marijuana issue was that a majority of Americans, even 25 years ago, supported making marijuana legal for medical purposes. It turned out that quite a lot of Americans actually knew somebody who they believed used marijuana for medical purposes. And by focusing on the medical use, you know, until we started working on medical marijuana, if the media did an article about marijuana and then they wanted a photograph, what they would show is they wouldn't show me wearing my suit when I was a professor, or they wouldn't show some of the police officers who supported us or the intellectuals. They would show some 17-year-old with, you know, long blonde dreadlocks and, you know, hemp leaves in his hair, right? You know, some, you know, image of the high school dropout, you know, every parent's fear, right? And even though that person represented only a tiny fraction of all cannabis consumers, that was the image. When we shifted to medical marijuana, Well, then the image became somebody who was a woman who had just gone through chemotherapy, right, for her nausea um, and was using marijuana so she could continue using marijuana so she could continue to have an appetite. It was somebody with multiple sclerosis who was using it to reduce the pain of, um, you know, of the symptoms. It was somebody who was living with AIDS and was doing it for their wasting syndrome. It was somebody using it for, you know, other medical conditions. So we began to transform the image of who was a cannabis consumer from that young teenage high school dropout to an older person using it basically for medical purposes with the support of their personal doctor. Right. And that had a big impact on uh, on people seeing that. Right. And if, if it meant that older people and sick people could safely use cannabis and it was actually medically valuable for them, even though it was not an official medicine. Well, what are we supposed to be so scared about? And then when dispensaries started to emerge to sell medical marijuana, and first those things emerged illegally. So a little bit like the coffee shops in the Netherlands. First they emerged illegally, and then local authorities began to tolerate them. And then beginning in 2007, 15 years ago, beginning in New Mexico, the states began to make laws regulating these things. Well, all of a sudden, cannabis was being sold in stores to people with a medical marijuana card from a doctor. And so now the thing was above ground and people could see, oh, there's a little medical cannabis store. It's regulated by the city government. You know, what's what's to be afraid of? So we slowly eased people into understanding that this was relatively not that dangerous, relatively safe. And then we started putting out whatever the opposition and the government would put out things about you know, these things that were either exaggerations or falsehoods about marijuana and crime or marijuana in the brain or marijuana as a gateway to other drugs. And we basically come back very rationally and we say, well, that, you know, that may be true, 
But it's not true in the overwhelming vast majority of cases. Marijuana is not a stepping stone for the vast majority of people who use it. Marijuana is not a good thing for adolescents to use, but the vast majority per- grow up to be perfectly fine without anything happening to their brains. You know, I mean, we, we just put out accurate information. And it was even on the language we used. Initially, we avoided using the word legalize because people had a negative reaction to that word legalize. But if you said to people, what about taxing, controlling, and regulating marijuana, educating kids? They say, oh, yeah, we support that. We just don't want to legalize. But you said tax it, control it, regulate it, and educate kids. That is legalization. But we were using terminology that was actually more accurate because legalize suggests you're approving it of it. It suggests a free market. And when in fact, we were actually talking about taxing, controlling, and regulating. So we use that kind of language to cross over, right? Now, there's a few other variables here. I mean, some of this stuff was also easier before Trumpism. I mean, you know, I decided to stop running my organization in 2016 before Trump was elected, and I actually stepped down a few months after he was elected. And bipartisanships become more difficult with Trumpism, you know, because you're dealing with a different Republican Party now, one that's become much more an anti-democratic, extremist, anti-science than it ever than it ever was in its past. Um, but you know, there's an, another element here too, which is. There was one time I remember going and speaking, and this may be much more in the American context than a European context, but I was invited to speak at some gathering put on by a somewhat left-wing economic think tank. But it was a big thing, hundreds of people from advocates and labor unions and left-wing thinkers. And I was there for the two or three-day conference, and I'm sitting there the first day, and then I give my speech on the second day. And one of the things I said was, you know, I've been sitting in the audience here for a day and a half, and my values are mostly center-left values. I basically sympathize in most of the things that people are advocating for from stage in terms of economic redistribution and how we see what a proper society should be like. You know, I regard the economic systems of Scandinavia and Northern Europe, you know, as something of a model. And the U.S. has had some wonderful things about our dynamic form of capitalism, but, you know, in terms of it being a more just economic society— we have a lot to learn from, you know, Scandinavian and Western Europe. But I say, I'll tell you something. I've been sitting here for a day and a half, and there are two words I have not heard anybody utter from the stage. And those two words are liberty and freedom. And I say, I don't understand. Don't we believe in those values of liberty and freedom, aren't the values of liberty and freedom essential to what it means to be somebody with progressive political values and progressive democratic values in our society? But are we saying that because the right wing uses the words of liberty and freedom, that therefore we're not going to use that word? Do we think we're going to inspire young people or even inspire people in the center of the country? Do we think we're going to communicate with people on the other side if we abstain from using those words? And so I think there are ways in which the the left has undermined itself. And so I would try to be quite disciplined when I was running my organization if we were putting out a press release or things like that. I would try to make sure that if we were doing a broad-based press release, you know, not just for, say, our state, but nationally, that we tried to use language that was as agreeable to people in the center and the right as it was to people in the left. What happens with many young activists is they start to get caught up in, you know, the language and the verbiage and the rhetoric of our side. And we're talking about about this sort of thing, which doesn't cross over to the majority of the population. 
Um, you know, I'm struggling with this right now. I see, first of all, in the academic world and in some of my allied advocates, they increasingly talk about drug, drug policy, the drug war is colonialism. And I'm trying to understand like where they're coming from and why they're using this phrase colonialism to refer to the drug war, colonial drug policy. Because I can understand how you might make an academic argument about this stuff. But if you want to succeed in, in basically winning, having our views on drug policy become the predominant ones, then it's important to use language which is accessible and even appealing on, across the political spectrum as much as possible, right? When you want to win, you have to think about the ears and the minds of the people you're trying to move. Those people who think that activism is just about standing up and saying what I think in whatever language I like the best, that's not activism. That's a kind of narcissistic form of self-articulation of your own values. If you actually want to win and change public policy and change public opinion, you think about using the language that's going to appeal not just to the people who already agree with you or agree with you more broadly politically, but for people who are coming from a different political perspective where you may still disagree about other social issues and other economic issues and other foreign policy issues, but you're trying to find common ground here. And that means putting yourself in their shoes. It means trying to think and feel as empathically as possible about the people who you're trying to move to accept your point of view. It means talking in a language that they can understand and even, uh, uh, you know, and, even, uh, and even own for themselves. Okay, I have two questions, which I don't know if we can squeeze here okay. in the 10 minutes we have left, but uh, let's try. So the, the first one is, um, I know that you, you are uh, for the decriminalization of use and possession regarding all drugs, but not necessarily for the legal regulation for all drugs. Would you elaborate on your views? Yeah, I, mean, I basically think that you need to move drug control as much as possible from a prohibitionist framework into a legal drug control regulatory framework, right? So imagine during on a spectrum from going from total prohibition to total legal regulation or even the free market. I think we need to move down the spectrum as much as possible where you're legally regulating these drugs as much as possible, but stopping short at the point at which further legalization might actually risk some significant threat to public health and well-being, right? So I think with cannabis, very clearly, you know, we're moving towards an alcohol control model, and that seems to be basically the right model. It might be a little tougher than the alcohol control model, but that's the right model, I think, in terms of achieving the best mix of maximizing the benefits and minimizing the downsides of marijuana being available in our society. I think with most of the psychedelics, I think you want to increasingly move in the direction, once again, where people who want to get this can get it from a legally regulated source. Right. And, you know, that may not involve selling it over the counter or in a pharmacy, but we want to find some way to enable that to happen. Now, when it comes to the white powder drugs, I mean, right now, the greatest threat to public health and to human life in my country with regard to illicit drugs is the spread of fentanyl. And fentanyl is basically about an unregulated drug supply. So when I look at what they're doing up in British Columbia, what they call safe supply, where they're increasingly trying to design systems where people who are already committed to using these drugs can obtain the drugs they want, but instead of buying them at inflated prices and adulterated form on the black market, can instead obtain these substances at little or no cost from a state-regulated enterprise or some clinic where they know what drug they're getting and where they're not paying black market prices. 
right? I mean, not, there's all the other sorts of good things you should do also to try to keep people from getting involved in drug addiction or getting out of it. But on the strictly drug regulatory element, that's where we need to head. Now, does that mean that in the end we should be selling fentanyl or heroin over the counter the way we currently sell um, alcohol or tobacco products or beginning to be cannabis products or aspirin or things like that? I don't know that over-the-counter is ultimately going to be the best method or where one can buy anything you want over the internet, although increasingly people can buy anything they want over the internet. So I think the whole key is really I do want to move as much as possible into a legal regulated scenario, understanding that we may stop short of allowing over-the-counter sale or active promotion and advertising over the airwaves and whatever in ways that may ultimately prove damaging to the broader public health. In the United States, we have the sobering lesson of what happened with pharmaceutical opioids in the late 90s and early 2000s, where some pharmaceutical companies started pitching you know, a form of oxycodone known as OxyContin and others kind of slow-release, very effective pain relief medicines, they started pitching it not just for acute pain, but for chronic pain, oftentimes to patients who really shouldn't be on it, and, and pitching it to doctors who should have known better. And so I think there, you know, we're very aware of the ways in which corporate forces can begin to play a really exploitative role once they get their hands on these things and where you know the state is uh, in, as, as, as becomes as ineffective in regulating pharmaceutical companies and medical you know suppliers as it has been regulating the illicit drug markets so that's my fear I also look um, uh, uh, in fact, in fact, Henry, it's funny. I think I gave a speech in Iceland a few years back, uh, where I, I remember it's on it's on YouTube somewhere, where I made this point at the University of in Reykjavik, and I made the point when people ask me what's my biggest fear about drug legalization, and my answer was, I look what's happened with respect to fast food and processed food. You know, I mean, now what's happened in many parts around the world, I don't know if this is true in your country, but certainly in my country and many other parts, including developing world, including in the Arab world, parts of Latin America, parts of Europe, there's been a more radical transformation in the human body in terms of obesity and even morbid obesity than ever before in human history. And the number of people who are dying because of unhealthy diets, who are dying prematurely, is now exceeding the number of people dying from smoking-related disease. And the cost of the economy are now beginning to exceed those things. And if you ask, why is this happening? One, I think, of the major variables is that the multinational producers of food products have become increasingly sophisticated in brain science, increasingly sophisticated in producing these products You know, that combine sugar fat, and, sugar, fat, and salt, right? Perhaps the three most you know, powerful drugs known to humankind, but combining them in ways at low prices that have basically transformed the way people eat, especially poorer people eat, in much of the world have resulted in a radical transformation in terms of people's body weights over the last generation or two and are having you know very bad health consequences. And if you think about what multinational pharmaceutical companies could do when they start playing around, you know, looking at brain chemistry and they're trying to figure out how do we design, you know, new products that people can use, you know, for decades without dying, but where they become dependent upon them and where they need to buy them every day, right? I mean, that's, you know, what do major companies want or small companies? They want to do products that people need to buy frequently, become dependent upon either physically, psychologically, emotionally, 
right? So that they have a sustained market for that thing. And I worry about what pharmaceutical companies could do ultimately. You know, some of these drugs will actually be a net positive thing in terms of people's mental health and physical health, but other things could be, you know, fairly problematic. I, I don't like to imagine if you start combining nicotine with drugs that are more powerfully psychoactive. So you get the dependence of nicotine with a psychoactive pleasure or fulfillment of these other things. Um, you know, it, it's, um, I mean, some of these products may prove beneficial for large numbers of consumers, um, and they may be products that don't result in shortening your life or causing fatal diseases, but they create a dependent population that might well be, many of whom, if not most of whom, might well better be off without it. So that's why I fear the kind of broader, more free market or quasi-free market legalization regime. Hmm. Oh, as we start wrapping things up, one thing that I would like to get your comment on is that uh, you've talked about the idea of a drug f drug-free world as a totalitarian idea. Yeah, I mean, remember that the notion of a drug-free world in 1998, when the United Nations held a great big General Assembly special session on drugs, their model was a drug-free world. We can do it. And in the United States, the rhetoric of drug-free schools, drug-free societies, drug-free workplaces, drug-free nation, right, was just everywhere. In fact, I think even the logo at one point of the leading U.S. science agency, National Institute on Drug Abuse, I think had that expression of drug-free. Now, when you talk about drug-free, drug-freeness, you're talking essentially about a utopian and ultimately totalitarian ideal. And when you start to think about creating a drug-free society and that everything we do should be designed to get us closer and closer and closer to that ideal of the drug-free society, well, then you start to say that it becomes like a crusade. It means how many people have to die, how much money needs to be spent, what other need, priorities need to be pushed aside. It doesn't make any difference because we have this totalitarian drug-free you know, thing in mind. And the other thing I don't like about the rhetoric of drug-free society You know, going back to what I said before about, you know, my dad, you know, being, you know, five years old living in Berlin when Hitler came to power. And, you know, you know, for the Nazis, it was about creating a Judenrein society, a society, a world free of Jews, right, of, by exterminating them. And when I hear drug free, I mean, it's not really about the drugs. It's about the people who use drugs. And so when you start talking about making a world free of drugs, you're talking about making a world free of drug users. And it then starts to raise the question, how far are you willing to go in terms of making the world free of drug users, right? We saw what happened with a, you know, a totalitarian Nazi ideology, and it's targeting it, you know, at Jews and to some extent also the Roma and homosexuals and a range of others, right? We've seen what happens when, when people, you know, the, you know, in some parts of the world where indigenous societies, whether you're looking in the in the southern part of Latin America or you're looking at Tasmania and Australia, where indigenous populations were just eradicated, right? I mean, that notion of dehumanizing other human beings, whether it's because of their ethnicity, their, their, their race, their belief system, or because of the substances they put in their body, um, no. I mean, a sensible policy seeks not just, it seeks to, re I mean, look, any sensible drug policy seeks to do two things. It, it starts off with the presumption that there's never been a drug-free society, maybe with a few exceptions. There's never going to be a drug-free society. And therefore, our great challenge as human beings, civilized human beings, is how do we learn to live with drugs so they cause the least possible harm, and in many cases, the greatest possible benefit? That's the broad 
objective of drug policy reform out of an intelligent drug policy. Learning to live with psychoactive drugs, so the plants and the chemicals, so they cause the least possible harm and the greatest possible benefit. And from a strictly policy perspective, that means policy seeks to need to reduce both the harms of drugs, the potential addiction, overdose, dependence, whatever, but also to minimize as much as possible the harms of drug control, drug prohibitionist policies. So that the optimal drug policy is the one that finds the best compromise, the best medium between reducing the harms of drugs and the harms of the government policies designed to control them. Okay. Uh, to end, I have a, a bunch of uh, short questions that you can reply with one sentence. So, an early memory that has affected the course of your life. Well, I mean, I will say uh, my first experience getting high with cannabis um, was important to me. Uh, you know, I mean, that's proved to be a cannabis, as I said at the beginning, has been a, a, a friend in life for many years. And uh, it helped me understand, you know, the attraction of this thing. A thing that inspires you? I mean, it's really courageous political leadership. You know, I mean, for me, I look at people who are fam very famous, like uh, Mandela in South Africa, Vaclav Havel, uh, Martin Luther King. Or then one particular example for me was a mayor of Baltimore, Kurt Schmoke, who stepped out in the late 1980s as a politician at the same time I was stepping out as an academic. And he had a lot more to lose as a politician in calling for an end to the drug war as a black mayor of a mostly black city. Um, but he showed enormous courage. And that, that really moves me greatly. A thing that brings out fear in you. I mean, the thing that causes the greatest fear in me now is reading the news every day about uh, what's going on in my own country, about the likelihood that a neo-fascist Republican Party is going to take power throughout my country in the next few years. If things go well, what's the direction you'll be uh, five years from now? If things go well, this rise of neo-fascism is going to burn itself out somewhere. You know, uh, there'll be somebody running Russia whose name is not Putin, uh, who wants to return to becoming a member of global society. And when it comes to drug policy, that the advances we've made keep proceeding. Inevitably, the pendulum will swing backward. But I hope we can get a lot further before the pendulum starts to swing the wrong way again. Hmm. Where can people follow your work? The best place is to check out my podcast. It's called Psychoactive, and it's on all the major platforms, I think, around the world. Uh, so I started it last year. I'm loving it. It got renewed for a second season. So please listen to Psychoactive and, uh, and enjoy it. I mean, you can feel free to write me at my email, ethan at nadelman.net, but I cannot promise to respond. Yeah, I thoroughly recommend your podcast. It's very interesting. Also, the origin story of Darren Aronofsky, the movie director, contacting you and asking if you would like to do a podcast on psychedelics and you replied yes but i want to do it on all yeah, drugs exactly although the irony of course is the way darren and i met was through a common friend who took each of us on our first ayahuasca trip about 20 years ago yeah that's interesting to hear as a longtime fan of aronofsky too uh, interesting to hear about his background yeah yeah no it's great that darren decided to do this it's uh you know he's been obviously a, a, a fairly well-known and highly regarded filmmaker 
Uh, many of the women who have, you know, have won Academy Awards, who have, you know, acted in his film, films. Um, but you know, his wanting to make this his first effort to do a podcast, to produce a podcast, I was delighted. And the fact that we all we teamed up with iHeart uh, Radio, which is one of the largest platforms in the world, means the thing is easily and readily available. And I'm working with a wonderful team of producers to help me put it together. Yeah, totally recommended. Okay, and then finally your uh, greetings or your suggestions or your wishes or or your prayers or your suggestions or whatever to whoever might be listening to well, this. Well, I'll assume most of your listeners are in Finland. I don't know if that's the case, and we're obviously talking English, but but I just hope that Finland beca- can really emerge as a leader in drug policy reform. I mean, the Dutch played a pioneering role initially, then Switzerland, uh, Portugal, each in their own distinctive ways. In Scandinavia, I mean, Denmark really began to move quickly, and I'm very impressed by the work that Norway has done. I mean, obviously, this is about coming, you know, overcoming the unfortunate influence of the Swedes and being a highly punitive approach towards drugs. And it's been good to see first the Danes, Norwegians, and now beginning a little bit in Iceland and Finland to see some breaking away from the, the Swedish mentality. But it would be nice to see that Finland move really to the forefront and to embrace, you know, the most human rights-based, science-based drug policies. I think it would reduce, it would basically, it would would lead to fewer people dying. It would lead to a more efficient and effective use of resources. It would lead to a higher level of freedom in Finland. And what I say here obviously applies not just with the illicit drugs, but also applies in how you handle the issue of nicotine and SNUS and in trying to make the non-combustible forms of tobacco and nicotine more available even as you try to discourage smoking among everybody in the society. Okay. Thank you. Okay, Henry. Well, it was a pleasure to talk with you, and I, I hope you get a wide listenership in Finland. Please let me know when it's up, and I'll, I'll put out a tweet of my own about the episode. And, uh, and uh, thank you for doing what you're doing. Mm, likewise. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Ethan Nedelman. Drug policy reform is hard. Most solutions are not as simple as one might think, and there are no silver bullets. Though there's a lot of room for improvement in our drug policies, drug use and the challenges that come with it is likely to remain with us, as it has throughout the course of our evolutionary history. But I do believe that we, as individuals, communities, societies, have the opportunity of cultivating a wiser, more considerate relationship with drugs. And one key ingredient in cultivating such a relationship is having curious, honest conversations. So, okay, I appreciate your time. Your likes, comments, shares and subscriptions are welcome. And if you want to support my work, please consider becoming a patron. And uh, hyvää todellisuuden jatkoa!